0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today?
1: Uh, It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with
0: you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. We are the number one value investing podcast in the world, uh, so you are in uh, a great spot. Uh, Be sure to check out all of our content that we put out on the internet. We uh, write about stuff at FocusCompound.com. Jeff actually uh, put up a post today, and there's another one scheduled for tomorrow. Uh, we tweet about a lot of different things that is going on in the market. Um, uh, it's a, a way for us to send out all of our content at, at Focus compound on Twitter. Um, if you're watching this on YouTube, we have the video version of our podcast. and If you're listening to us on Spotify or the podcast app on iTunes or other um, uh, I guess you could say, uh, apps where you listen to podcasts. Well, we have all of our content on there as well. So if this is the first time you're joining us. Thank you so much. And be sure to check out all of our other content. If you're interested in learning more about our money management services, reach out to me at andrew at focused compounding.com. You could also go to focuscompounding.com, uh, click the invest with us tab to get some more information on everything we're doing here at focus compounding. So, Jeffrey, how's it going? What's uh what's new in your world? Have you seen the new Top Gun movie? No. You didn't see the new Top Gun movie? Mm-mm. I'm very surprised that you didn't see the new Top Gun movie. I'm not even a Top Gun mm-hmm. fan. Mm-hmm. And I saw I haven't even seen the first one. Okay. But I saw Maverick, the mm-hmm. new one. They're projected to do a billion dollars from this film globally. Okay. Yeah. And I will say it was an incredible film. Um I'm so upset that you haven't seen it because I wanted to talk about <laughs> it. I thought for sure. On week four, that you have seen the film. But I don't know if you've read about it. The actors themselves actually were in fighter jets for the filming okay. because they wanted to get like the facial expressions of gravity and going, you know, million miles per hour and stuff. So, wow, I'm very upset uh, that you haven't seen it. So, Jeff, if, if I could give you homework, uh, it would be to see um, Top Gun Maverick. It was actually okay. a really, really good film. I mean, where do you even see a movie there? I mean, you kind of live in the country now. You're away from civilization. They have two multiplexes in the town. Yeah. Is it a, There's a cinemark? I okay. have a
1: cinemark and they have another concept, like a um, family entertainment center, you know, combination. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Have you seen the new Jurassic Park? Is it Jurassic World? I don't know what it is, but. Yes, I did see that. Okay. How was that? That was fine. That was fine. <laughs> well, they are also racking it in at the uh, box office so i mean just Mm. movie theaters they're back talked Mm -hmm. about this all the time chicken the egg problem is it the product is it you know the change of preference of how people want to spend their time to see a movie i mean when the product is there people are going to see a movie yeah yeah.
1: jurassic uh jurassic world jurassic world um uh yeah jurassic world dominion i guess it's called and uh um, Top Gun, Maverick, uh, both probably did as well as they would have done, you know, outside of pandemic. Um, Lightyear, obviously, did not do so great. Why do you think that is? Um, probably. That's a because, Toy Story spinoff, off, right? Yeah. Buzz Lightyear? Probably because Pixar hasn't released a movie commercial, uh, it, you know, in cinemas for a few years. They all went to Disney Plus. So it, I don't know if that's a permanent harm to the brand, but it may be. So basically, they hadn't. They're the first ones that didn't I guess um let's see uh maybe onward was released right when the pandemic was happening or something that might have been the last movie that they did, so everything else has gone to Disney plus and, you know they may have had success with growing Disney plus that way, but they haven't um been putting them out in theaters, so yeah, that's way below like Toy Story four or whatever else would be kind of in that series if you think about it um so I, I don't know if that. That brand is as big as it once was. And that may be due to putting on streaming things for the last few years.
0: Yeah, Top Gun Maverick, for people watching on the screen right now, $887 Mm -hmm. for worldwide box office numbers. Yeah, it had an amazing hold, but,
1: of course, it was Father's Day. It might be a Father's Day movie. Uh
0: Uh-huh. Probably is. Uh Uh-huh. It's interesting that Tom Cruise does all of the stunts himself. I was watching a video of, I mean, he's even done stunts where he was holding, I don't even know the movie, but this YouTube video was showing like eight of his top stunts. I mean, he was holding an airplane, like on the side uh, of an airplane, it, of course, with like a wire attached to him as it was taking off. Rogue,
1: Rogue Nation?
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, I think so. I mean, absolutely crazy. I mean, they even said that they did like eight takeoffs or 10 takeoffs because I mean, he just wanted to make sure it was perfect. Um, they have another one, I believe, where he was in dubai on the tallest building in the world and it's mission running down protocol. it yeah um just a bunch of different uh interesting things and then of course you know you have top gun where they actually were flying the planes themselves the mm-hmm. one of the actors i forget his name i guess he got sick okay on set he had he was very hot he said and there were like hives all over his body he goes to the doctor they do blood tests Long story short, the next day they find out that there was jet fuel in his blood. Oh, so then Tom Cruise, I guess, asked him. He's like, "Hey, kid, what happened?" Did the doctor say anything? And he's like, "Oh, yeah, I uh, I have jet fuel that was in my blood." And Tom Cruise was like, "Me too, kid. Me too." Without even skipping a beat. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Why do people think he's crazy?
1: Uh, because of all the stunts and and is it things.
0: the stunts? Okay, and the Scientology stuff. Yeah, all Got those it. things. Yeah Uh Um, because my perception of him even growing up was that people think he's a bit of a wacko but i don't think i've ever seen a film he's done that i'm just like that was an incredible performance
1: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and he obviously does a lot of his own stunts and that became a big thing with mission impossible after the really after the second one the first two don't really have a lot of um his own stunts in them
0: i mean i think there was even a i don't know if it was mission impossible but he was flying a helicopter and doing mm-hmm. all these crazy maneuvers yeah. and stuff like that. I'm like, holy they smokes. Please do a Yeah. This does not seem safe at all. <laughs> to have him do a lot of helicopter stuff. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And even in other movie seasons, practical driving stuff, normally they don't have the actors do the driving. Yeah.
0: Absolutely crazy, huh? Crazy, crazy, crazy. Anyways, we could talk about what's going on in the market. Um, we recorded last week. On Tuesday, and we were talking about how news was leaked to the media that the Fed was considering a 75 basis point rate hike day before the Fed meeting. Correct, and that did happen. So the Fed raised um, 75 basis points, and then also hinted towards uh, 75 basis points being on the table for July, Mm -hmm. Um, where we sit currently today. SP 500. Uh, down twenty-one percent. Ten-year, uh, three point two eight three. Crude oil, hundred ten dollars a barrel. Natural gas, six eight six. So, crude and natural gas has pulled back a little bit.
1: Yeah, since last time we talked, the others are pretty similar, right? Mm-hmm.
0: For the SP500, mm-hmm. I think the ten-year was at like 3.3 uh, three last time we spoke. But I found I found this chart pretty interesting. Um, the record. I'm gonna make it bigger so people could see record amount of wealth destruction that has happened in u.s stocks and bonds 15.5 mm-hmm. trillion since the peak which would have been end of 2021 beginning of 2022 i guess for the sp500 but even other tech stocks and stuff started to pull back really like what q3 q4 of last year yeah
1: um, and a huge um difference is that uh bonds and stocks both went down at the same time mm-hmm. right and bonds are very big market so
0: if you look at the typical 60 40 portfolio didn't help no not at all having one or the other yeah Uh Mm uh-huh i mean why is that is that like a new normal is that just because of the times where this cycle we have inflation being an issue so then they have to hike interest rates i mean why is that well they're both
1: very expensive so that's part of it and then both of them are caused by short-term money being more attractive so that affects both of them rising interest rates you know affect both of them um The record for the long-term past has been very mixed, uh, I would say, although there's a perception that stocks and bonds um, are good diversifiers. I don't think that's as true as people think. I think cash, short-term money bills are a much better diversifier than treasury bonds and uh, are much, much better diversifier than uh, corporate bonds, especially uh, higher risk uh, bonds. So, at sometimes in the past, higher risk bonds, corporate bonds, have been a better diversifier, but they had um, much higher yields. So, like if we go back to the 80s, you know, their performance wasn't as bad as it has been now. Uh, But that's total return because their yields are much higher. So, if you had double digit yields, even though you had very high, uh, even though you have very large uh, losses uh, in terms of price, you had uh, high yields, which made up for a lot of it. And now you don't. So that's a big offset. That's what we're talking about, duration and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's the problem. When you have things priced, and it's even more extreme in European things, that some of them were negative or zero. Um, If you price something with no yield on it, then obviously you can set records in terms of losses just by having the same price moves that you had before.
0: I mean, this isn't financial advice we're talking about. I mean, but if you were in or near retirement? I mean, what would you do to find yield? I mean, it's a very sticky situation currently. Inflation is very hot. You can't really hide out in bonds. You can't really hide out in equities. I mean, what does, I mean, you, it's different because you're a capital allocator and you're a stock picker, but I mean, for maybe people listening
1: where I, they I may don't. not have
0: that, I mean, what, how, what do you even do in today's markets? I don't even know. I don't think that
1: highly rated corporate bonds or treasuries are appropriate for individual investors. They don't offer high enough returns and they don't diversify enough. So I think cash, you know, is if you want diversification, you hold cash. And um, and cash hasn't done that badly over long periods that you could look at that were bad for the market or whatever. Uh, cash holds it better than you might think. It hasn't held up that well in the last 10 years or so when the yields on it were nothing. But then it made up for a lot of that difference. So when I say cash, you know, it, it, that could mean uh, one year, you know, something like that. But um, I'm talking very short term. So uh, that's a good diversifying thing. And then um, unfortunately, if you want um, income, you have to sell something that has capital appreciation instead of looking for income to be actually received on yields. On um, dividend yields. Yeah. So you sell part of what you have and live off of that instead of looking for yield on things. Um. Occasionally, there are alternatives in some stuff, but the good returns, even in, when we talk about bonds and things, are generally focused on making sure that there's a lot of capital appreciation. When we, even when we talk about junk bonds and things, a lot of the return comes from capital appreciation. It doesn't come from higher yields. Um. So I, th- I think it's hard to f- find... Yield that way, and I think you open yourself up to large risks when you try to get returns in, in terms of the yield, um, especially because if it's related to the yield, obviously then you open yourself up to very, very large capital losses. It, even say that you have been reaching for yield on something, um, you have very large losses when yields on other things go above that. So, for instance, let's say you a know, year or two or whatever, you're reaching for yield in somewhat very high-grade like junk bond things um well uh, cash is about to yield more than what you bought those at so obviously those are large losses if you had been buying things that have um many years to go on them so they didn't really accomplish
0: much obviously that's a problem sometimes you see these stocks that are trading at you know a high free cash flow yield or a high dividend yield and then people can think oh this is a safe return Um, but it's being priced accordingly because of risks at the actual business level, or maybe they have a ton of debt to give it that, you know, 20% free cash flow yield, or it's a 10 or five to 10% dividend yield. Um, but I guess it really just comes back to the quality of the businesses that you're investing in.
1: Yeah. I mean, when we talked about during the pandemic or something, I think we talked about the preferred stock of an apartment company, um, something like that's held up pretty well like the price is a bit higher than when we talked about it, even though yields are up a lot and that's just because the yield was very high on it. Um, so there are some things like that, but that's real. But when we're talking about those, we're talking about really reaching for yield, um, just things that are priced inappropriately. So that's something that at the time might have been priced to yield 10% or something that holds up a lot better. Even when, um, yields on cash, um, you know, short-term treasury stuff goes up a lot. Um, But if you were looking at something where you said, oh, here's a bond that yields a few percent, or here's a stock that has a dividend yield that's okay, then, you know, that's why you've had those losses. But this isn't something new. You know, Buffett and everyone warned about this for a long time, that both stocks and bonds were priced in a way that was going to be difficult. Um, Hasn't really happened before that I can think of. Um, This is the first time, you know, the 2010s is the first time that both stocks and bonds seemed inappropriately highly priced there have been times when uh stocks were really expensive but bonds weren't so dot com stocks very expensive bonds not um stocks and bonds both cheap in the early 1980s um bonds way too expensive 1940s stocks not way too expensive so this is you know In terms of like a bubble, it's an everything bubble and that it's both stocks and bonds. Now, it's not to say everything in the world. There were other markets that you could go into, I guess, that are neither stocks nor bonds that you maybe could have bought something. Um, So, for instance, you could have bought gold. Gold, I don't think, has gone down much this year, right?
0: That's correct, yeah. Yeah.
1: So, so that did diversify you. And cash would have diversified you. And those are things that logically, if you looked at what would diversify me, cash and gold are
0: more logical diversifiers than bonds, really. Yeah, and you've spoken about if you were running your own personal account, you would just keep it in something short, like T bills, until you found an idea to right. put that capital to work. You wouldn't be like you wouldn't start a portfolio like, okay, I need to find eight companies or five or whatever number it is to invest right away. You would slowly do it over a period of years. Really think about it yeah. if you were to be investing in private businesses, how that individual would probably think about doing it. Right. Because like, that diversifies you across time. So that's what helps. I mean, what you wouldn't have wanted is
1: what to inherit a lot of money in January 1st of this year, yeah, and say I'll put half in bonds and half in stocks. It d- didn't really give you a different outcome than if you'd said I'll buy a lot of bonds or I'll buy a lot of stocks. Or, um, but if you've been buying a combination of bonds and stocks for the last few years, then you're more diversified, you know. So on any time that you're gonna buy all on one day, you're not gonna have a, as much diversification as you think. So yeah, if you, if you bought five or 10 different stocks over five or 10 years, slowly going into them, then you're going to be more diversified than you might think. Um, instead of looking at it as a
0: portfolio approach where, you know, it's all as of every day that you have to decide how much you want in each. Why do people not do that? I mean, I think you're probably the first time I've ever heard somebody say that that's a uh, valid method or how you would do that.
1: I think more people do it than you might think. It's not studied. Um, mm-hmm. academic things and institution stuff always focuses on this idea of a portfolio mm-hmm. yeah um, but it's, for instance if you're trying to set aside a certain amount of money to guarantee that you don't end up broke the way to do it depends a lot on the risks to it in the first few years once you have a few years of compounding in it's not likely to be a really big problem Um, so I think a lot of it is the studies of how they do it trying to figure it out so you know you say like oh well you'd be behind from 1929 to you know um 20 some years later or whatever if you went all into stocks that's true but as you can see on the chart there if you start in 1925 and you know and we're evenly putting money in before then which isn't very long Uh um you don't have that same problem uh Which is important because say you start an endowment or something, you can easily go broke because you can't spend any of the money if you put it all in in 1929. But if you spread it out over a few years, as long as those years aren't a bubble, you're a lot better off. Um, Generally, I think it makes sense to buy stocks whenever you find a company you like. Only warning is that there are occasionally bubbles. Um, You know, in that Schiller PE chart, the ones that stand out obviously are the 1920s and the 1990s bubbles. Um, There are other points that are pretty expensive, too. Um, And I'd be cautious about them. What we're in now, 1960s. And it's not like this is only in retrospect. You know, at each of these times, people wrote books and things about how crazy it was. And Mm -hmm. so it makes sense to be a little careful there and not go all in at that moment. And unfortunately, um, individual investors sometimes get involved in the market at exactly that time. You know, I knew plenty of people who, probably didn't invest before about 1996 at all and then probably stopped investing after about 2001 or so Um, and then took many years before they bought stocks again and that was probably
0: true in the 1920s as well and i think true to some extent in the 1960s do you think people just they don't look at where they are in the cycle for example like looking at a current shiller p e ratio of 29 times after we've sold off a good amount? I mean, do you think they just don't? I mean, it looks like from this chart, we were probably, you know, 36, 37 times. I mean, do you need to realize where you are and understand that you're kind of on thin ice and you need to be very careful about where you pick your spots? I mean, if you're a value investor Mm -hmm. investing in a market that is, let's call it 36 times a shiller PE, Mm -hmm. but you're being very careful about where you're picking your investments, where for us, we always talk about, us paying up is like what 15 times i mean generally speaking right. you're looking for like 13 times earnings mm-hmm. do you think there's an inherent hedge investing that way when you're investing in an already frothy market do you think people need to uh, just realize where they are i mean because people they get so accustomed to what seems normal now mm-hmm. without yeah. realizing that actually the past 10 years or whatever the past five years have been very abnormal right no i think that's what happened yeah
1: the the issue with the Schiller p that you can see there is um it would have basically said it's okay to invest um fully for only a few years in the early 2010s after that it would have been telling you that there was a problem um that you're pretty expensive so i'm sure a lot of people expected it to drop even further than it ended up doing um it keeps you out of the market for a longer time if you don't if you're literally not in stocks. Um, I don't think that makes a lot of sense though because at almost all times, um, it has made sense to be allocated overwhelmingly to stocks. Mm-hmm. Um, for a long-term investor, it's been less true for the time that I've been investing. It's been um, you know more skeptical of that for the last twenty-five years or so um it's been pretty high throughout that whole period and it's you know a little more debatable whether it's always been a good idea to be a lot in stocks but i think you can find things to do and we focus on stocks and we've found ways to make money beyond the market return so that's something that we focus on whereas like in bonds they don't see how i would be able to make returns above what um a fairly representative group of bonds would be doing so there's other ways to add value so you focus on those sorts of things um but yeah i think people haven't wanted to hold cash obviously because uh-huh. yeah. the cash yields nothing and uh you see other people making money and you want to keep up with that and that's the whole and the market too yeah and that's the whole approach of the the fed's idea um the um portfolio type approach that they have which is the idea that if they soak up the supply of lower risk Things that people would, uh, that investors would otherwise be in, they can push them into other things because the same demand will be there. So if you soak up supplies of treasuries, then you can push them out into other things. If you soak up supplies of mortgages, you can push them out into other things. And eventually people are pushed out. And then those people will push out the next group of people. So people who would otherwise be owning those things then go into dividend yielding stocks. That might push us and other value investors out of dividend yielding stocks into value stocks that don't have dividends, which then might push them out and, and so on until the final people who might normally be growth investors or whatever are pushed out into owning you know,
0: Bitcoin and things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the method of how that works. You think being a value investor almost puts you in a bucket where you're following a framework that logically makes sense because, okay, so... You're not, as a value investor, going to be saying, oh, 20 P.E. is the new 30 P.E., for example. Okay. Right? So let's say you buy a company that actually generates free cash flow. Mm-hmm. You're, it was kind of rational when you went into it. Let's say that company is down 30 or 40 percent this year. Mm-hmm. That company is a lot different than the high tech company that doesn't generate any free cash flow. Quite frankly, it earns cash flow that is also down 30 to 40%. Mm. You know, company A versus company B, those are two totally different situations. Do you think if you follow the value framework, it almost, I don't wanna say protects you from you, but there's just an inherent margin of safety if you're investing like that when you own these cash flow generative businesses and you didn't pay too high of a price? I mean, I would be worried if I bought a company at, let's say, 30 or 40 times earnings and they don't really generate anything meaningful Mm-hmm. as it relates to free cash flow and that stock is down 40 percent. people could look at it and be like oh well that's a you know looks like a cheap stock it's down 40 percent." but at the end of the day um they still aren't generating good cash if you think about the value of something being the pv of its future cash flow or valuing the future right. cash flow it seems like following this approach um it just almost saves you from you i mean never are we valuing companies that we think we're going to be able to sell it at you know 20 or 30 times earnings if you're buying something at 13 times earnings and it re-rates to a market multiple well great if it re-rates to 15 times earnings which is the Mm long-term average well great um i just feel like following that framework it almost if stocks sell off i feel like you're able to be more proactive as opposed to having just to kind of put your head in the sand and hope and pray that things come back,
1: yeah. Well, it's worked in some cases. It worked in the early two thousands for value investors. It worked from the nineteen seventies through the early eighties. Um, there's been other times. I mean, it, there's not so far. It certainly being in value type stocks instead of um, the most the, the like sort of profitless growth companies has certainly been a big help. But it hasn't actually given you much better returns in the market. There isn't some huge gap where value stocks are outperforming the uh more widespread index things. They're certainly not underperforming. They're not including in the mix certain stocks that have done a lot worse. Um at other times it hasn't really helped. Uh you know, it may have helped in the initial decline in nineteen twenty nine, but it didn't really help from like nineteen thirty 1930 to
0: nineteen thirty two. Value investors went down a lot too. Um so <laughs> But then it turns into a waiting game, right? Like Mm -hmm. if you're worried about impairment of capital, I feel like if you're like, well, this business is still a great company generating cash. I just may have to wait a few years for the price to come back. The business itself is continuing to improve, you know, Mm -hmm. but then the other end of that is we always use the example of Microsoft from 2001 and how long it took, even though the business on all fronts from a fundamental perspective, were improving year over year. It still took whatever it was like 10 or 11 years to get back to break even if you bought it at the peak of 2000 2001
1: yeah and we'll see um what happens this time obviously if if rates were to stay higher for longer then you probably have better results in in value compared to some of the things we're talking about because they would be a uh, meaningful alternative for a while um and we'll see if that's true but uh it's a, It would be a factor. And then balance sheet things also be a factor. Because obviously, like we've talked about recently, sort of you can't access capital market stuff right now. Certainly, on-profitable companies and, can't, and those sorts of things can't issue debt. Presumably, they won't be able to borrow a lot soon. Um, and they can't issue stock and go public. So that's sort of what happened in the early 2000s. And when that happens, then uh, you know the it matters a lot whether you generate cash or mm-hmm. not yeah,
0: and whether your balance sheet is strong or not. I know we've been talking, at least in you know the first part of these podcasts, about interest rates and mm-hmm. mar- macro stuff and everything that kind of relates to that. But if you think about what has happened in the world, and the economy, I guess from a macro perspective, since we launched the fund, right. Jan 1, 2020, we have a global pandemic, yeah. interest rates to nothing, mm-hmm. an explosion in federal debt, an explosion in quantitative easing. Mm-hmm. Now we have record inflation. Yep. Now we have interest rates going up. Right. I mean, it's just funny when you think about all these crazy things that have happened. So sometimes I just wonder, while all that is important, especially if you're you know investing in financials, you think mm-hmm. about interest rates and stuff like that. I wonder if we lose sight in all of the uh, noise. Where at the end of the day, the only thing that really matters is just having a bottom-up thought process and staying rational in the way that you invest not getting too crazy not saying 20 is a new 30PE right um, sticking to those fundamentals or that framework that you know that works and just kind of tune all of it out yeah uh, I think
1: that most of the time you can tune those things out the the issue here why these macro things mattered so much is because of the prices the prices both on stocks and on bonds so the same you know people compared sometimes the inflation recently to the inflation after world war ii um stock prices were not very expensive so they could deal with having a lot of inflation um and it wouldn't necessarily cause the same sorts of problems that we're seeing now um do you know what unemployment was it, out of
0: world war, war ii
1: well right out it was about one and a half percent or something like that really oh uh yeah, in terms of like, I mean, I don't know what statistics they kept then, but literally everyone was employed, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so you have um, a, a difference in terms of pricing there, and I think that's a major factor here. But we knew about that. No one had, no one had defended either stock prices or bond prices. Except to say that there were not other alternatives that were better. Sure. Yeah. Um, so everyone in defending recent stock prices was using um, bond prices from other periods. So, for instance, saying that stock prices were really reasonable versus the dot com era, the comparison was well, the in the dot com era interest rates were at like six percent, and then here they were at like two or something, you know, longer term. And so that's why it made sense. Um, they were all based on that idea. So when you have a resetting of interest rates, obviously it matters a lot more. And the same sort of thing with inflation. If we had the same level of inflation, but we've been used to seeing a lot more inflation, this wouldn't be such a big deal. Um, If they had a little inflation at points in the 1990s, they were used to an incredible amount of inflation in the 70s and 80s. So this didn't come as such a shock to them. Uh, here, the idea that there would ever be inflation was something people you know didn't believe and that interest rates would would be
0: anything other than close to zero isn't something anyone believed do you think a lot of people didn't believe that we'd have this inflation issue just because the Fed really was struggling over the past whatever it was since the last cycle to hit that two percent inflation target?
1: Yeah, people usually adjust their beliefs that whatever is happening right now is the new normal I mean after World War II they really did believe they're about to a lot of people really believe they're about to go into another depression because they'd had a depression before. So that's what they believed. Um, anytime that inflation started to go up after the experience that people had in the, in the 70s, um, they started to believe it was going to go up to really on, to really high levels. And so they acted quickly to do something about it. Um, we had a long period where we were getting over a financial crisis. It wasn't as bad as the Great Depression, but it was the closest that there had been to that. And so that had the same effect on people's minds for a long time. Um, and so then everyone adjusts their estimates for everything downward. So they start to expect that inflation will always be lower, that growth will always be lower, that prices will always be higher, as we saw, and that those things will go on for a long time. Um, you know, and that's what you tend to see. Most estimates work that way. Uh, a lot of estimates, pretty good estimates, from people who know a lot about a certain topic and can write intelligently about it still predict they say well this should lead to a lot higher of this or that or the other thing but i still think we'll be closer to what we have now so they expect some adjustment but not a very dramatic adjustment usually you know um that's usually what you see with estimates so when people say like well inflation will be higher but it won't be so high i think it'll be a gradual thing that often is a sign that it's going to be a lot higher But someone isn't willing to say that because they're anchoring on whatever the recent experience has been. The same thing with stock things. You know, if someone says, well, they should be a lot lower, but I think it will happen gradually over a period of years where returns aren't really that good. I can't imagine any reason why they would drop a lot. That's usually an indication that they will drop a lot. You know, the same thing with home things or whatever, Um, because they're they're actually putting a lot of good estimates into, rational estimates into what's going to happen, but no one ever thinks that there'll be a big um, correction in a short period of time they always expect it to be more gradual than it will be and more like this very recent past so there's plenty of people saying that the market was too high and that it would take a lot to adjust to any higher rates at all but they didn't say this will happen in the next few months they always assume that adjustment will happen over a period of more years Mm. and that's kind of usually more of the difference
0: which makes it tough right i could think of One I don't know why, but a funny article title I I liked it a lot from that you wrote in probably 2017 or 2018. Mm -hmm. It was just so like forward with it. The title was "Are We in a Bubble?" question mark. And then you said, "Honestly, yes." Right. And that was back in 2017 and 2018. And that's just what makes all of this so hard. I think if you're trying to invest with a top-down perspective, because you just be scared out of never finding bargains or actually putting money to work.
1: Yeah. The other thing that you have is the difficulty of adjustment for people in terms of time. So for instance, let's say that 2017 or whatever. Imagine you were thinking, well, I'll own Netflix. Right? Well, Netflix is the same place it was in 2017. So um but I don't think people go, oh, I'm glad I didn't get into Netflix five years ago. Correct, yeah. Because it went up a lot in between. Yeah. mm -hmm. And it it might be cheap now. I don't know. But if it goes up a lot, even if it comes back down to the same place, you feel like you missed out on something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, people assume that they will sell out. That's true both at the bottom and the top. And that's the part that really doesn't make sense. If someone's going to do a market call on something, it really should be... That you'll get another point that's as good as this one it shouldn't be that they have to pick the bottom or something so Mm -hmm. when people say oh someone said in 20 uh 21 that this is too high and it went out for another 18 months or whatever you know so that they missed out on picking the exact time that should have happened but if it turns out that you end up at a lower price than that then i think that that their prediction is good enough um same thing for, with things from uh that we talk about naming the exact bottom or whatever um buffett's talked about that people give him a lot of credit for saying you know buy american buy buy stocks in 2008 or whatever and he says it was terrible timing because if he had waited four or five months or whatever the prices came down so much he would have been able to do a lot more at better prices and so it was a really bad suggestion but now people just look back and I'd say well he was right for the next decade yeah. you know,
0: so that's great timing uh-huh Do you think it's hard to sell a stock if it's without I guess if the motive for selling isn't holy cow I made a mistake because if you realize you make a mistake I think it's easier to sell it and move on you rationalize it of oh I thought x y happened you move on to the next thing do you think it's tough when it's purely on valuation or is it easier that way because it's purely math from that perspective
1: I mean for me it's easier but that might mean selling too soon. Yeah. But I think the easiest is when it's purely on valuation. Now you could say with Netflix or something, it might be kind of difficult to figure out um, how high the valuation
0: should be. But uh, yeah, for me, that's the easiest. I've thought through like, if you're ever holding a stock that's up, let's call it 10 times, 15 times. Mm -hmm. And you're like, Oh, hundred bagger, hundred bagger. I want to get a hundred bagger in my lifetime. (laughs) You know, At what point would you jump off that train to put it in something else? I mean, Mm -hmm. I think by definition, anything that becomes a hundred bagger at some point in its journey probably becomes pretty overvalued if you're looking at it like on TTM numbers or stuff like that. If you, that'd be a good study to look at Mm -hmm. most hundred baggers, but I'd be willing to bet at some point it probably wasn't screaming cheap. Right? No, it it wouldn't
1: have been uh, looking especially cheap. That's right. But there are some valuations that are pretty difficult to justify and um, you might have other opportunities to put into something else. Now, if you don't have opportunities to put into something else, then I think that makes sense to stay in it. And obviously, sometimes there are tax implications for it, although they often get to prices that are so high that even the tax implications don't really make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, if you've been holding it and you're already in the long-term gains category... Yeah, but the returns can be so bad, like we talked about with Microsoft or Buffett and Coke Uh and those sorts of things. Um, If it has a very high growth rate, it may be difficult to value. But if it's just a stock that has a very high multiple but isn't actually growing that fast, then there shouldn't be that wide a range of what you think it might be worth. So Netflix in recent years, do you have a quick FS for it? Sure. I think it's been growing, what, like 30% or something in some years. So it's been fast enough that it's an issue. Um. Yeah, so it kind of growing 30%. I mean, it had been slowing down, even through the pandemic, it had been slowing down. Um. It's interesting. So it's valued. So Netflix has come down a huge amount. It, it's still valued at more than, I believe, Paramount and uh, Warner Discovery combined. So it's, this is still a very expensive media property that's more expensive than two of the biggest movie mm-hmm. studios slash TV things that there are around, Um, both with streaming services that are pretty big. Um, so it's not cheap that way, you know, as compared to other media properties, it's pretty expensive and it has not had a history of generating any sort of actual free cash flow. If you count reinvestment in existing, um, movies, I think that it peaked, if you see in 2020, that's sort of about one and a half billion, something like that. Depends on how you uh, come up with it because it has stock-based compensation, um so it shows that cash flow from operations was 2.5 billion although it's worth noting that the year before it was negative two point something billion so on a three-year basis it's i don't believe it's ever generated free cash flow Uh, so you can see that in the net issuance of debt it's it, it tended to issue debt over time uh so because of that it's really just the growth rate You know, if you think that it's it's going to give a return to you, then it really just depends on how high the growth rate is. But the growth rate was high enough for a while that you could have said um, that it wasn't, you know, that even though it was really expensive, if I'm always going to grow at 30 percent or something for a long period of time, then maybe I can have um, good returns here and I shouldn't sell people would say the same thing about amazon they'd say the same thing about um certainly the ones that are even more impressive are like we talked about facebook you know meta uh, It had even higher returns and high profitability so it would make even more sense with something like facebook as opposed to netflix not to sell um netflix was more high price and, and less attractive um growth
0: things than, than meta especially like from like a free cash flow conversion Mm -hmm. all those other things it was all growing free cash cash flow per share faster yeah yeah. buying back their stock Mm -hmm. yeah generating plenty of cash flow that way i don't want to dance on a grave or anything i know it's you know hindsight's 2020 but do you think if you were looking at this you would have start to get a little bit nervous just because it's been so obvious that competition is coming into the streaming industry it's interesting i don't think that netflix
1: will be particularly hurt by competition. I've always thought that they'll all end up in the same place, Uh, so I think there was a hoarding into uh, a herding into um, one particular stock that I don't think made a lot of sense. So I think there'll be some streaming services that fail, but I see no reason. I've never seen a reason to assume that Netflix would be at a larger size at the end of the period. You know, at the end of whatever period of growth there is in streaming, than say Disney Plus or HBO Max. Why would people, on average, have one service? doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's like thinking, oh, NBC will be huge and CBS won't be. I don't I don't really get it. Um, and so there might be only three, four, five worldwide that get to a scale that they can actually make money. But I think for a while, for some reason, Netflix was valued a lot higher than other um, streaming services, maybe because it was a lot bigger already and it was growing. Mm-hmm um as opposed to ones that might be bigger a few years down the road so that one always did surprise me with it and and like i said to this day it's interesting because even though netflix has come down a lot and as a tech stock is kind of considered pretty cheap um when you compare it to other media companies that have similar properties and similar kinds of things they're trying to do and paramount and and um and warner are pretty good examples of companies that are have very similar strategies to Netflix Disney also but Disney has so much other stuff that's not a really a good comp um it's actually still pretty expensive versus those things so um it's an interesting issue that they have um now of course at some point maybe if they'd been allowed to or something they could have acquired something else i don't think they would have been allowed to but it, that would have been helpful
0: in the process if they could have gotten a movie studio so when you say you think it's actually cheap as a tech stock, yeah. How are you thinking about that valuation? Okay. Things like that. Yeah. So
1: if we look, price to sales looks very reasonable. Um it's two point you know, two and a half times. So here we see price to sales is two point six, EV to sales two point eight, see EV to EBITDA. That's a very strange measure for this kind of company, though. Four
0: point five, the PE that you see, that all looks cheap. Why would that be a strange measure for this company? Because of all the uh, amortization. Right. So the problem
1: is that the CapEx can be very deceptive because um, it's it all goes thing. into cash flow from operations because they have to um, capitalize other things. It's sort of like a publisher. Um, so you, your basic business is, is not CapEx. It shows up in the cash flow from operations, the things that you're acquiring and all that. EBITDA is usually pretty low on a um uh, this kind of thing, like a movie studio or something. It's not necessarily low on like a, um pure media outlet but does not but netflix is actually making some of their own content and they're buying other things and advertising it so
0: so when you said that you think the streaming companies will all end up in the same place what does that mean no, same number of subscribers okay yeah so okay so basically i don't how many think subscribe it, to netflix paramount i think it's the Hulu. opposite of a winner takes
1: all got it i there. think if you get to 300 million before the guy at 100 million it makes no difference the guy at 100 million can get up to 300 million eventually he'll just grow faster than you later um i think there's some that won't have enough scale um netflix's problem is obviously they don't have any supply anymore so when they had the competition, it's not really that people said, okay, I'm canceling Netflix to subscribe to these other services. It's that literally the stuff was pulled from Netflix. And that's the problem. I mean, I did a little calculation for someone who was asking about Netflix. And my estimate was that in a few years, 50 to 85% of all US, so Hollywood, which was like virtually everything that would matter to US and, and most other countries, um, content. So that is movie content will not be available to Netflix. They literally cannot access it because they're in direct competition with those companies. And in the US, you're legally allowed to keep things for yourself. There's no requirement anymore in this sort of thing. There was once a requirement in things like TV, but there is not a requirement that you cannot create content to distribute yourself in movies. So Disney, Warner, Paramount, they can create something in-house and show it themselves without ever having to offer it to the highest bidder. Now, if they had to offer it to the highest bidder, it would be a completely different industry. But they don't. They can create it and um, keep it for themselves. And once they start doing that, then Netflix doesn't have access to most of the content that people want. So that makes it very expensive to try
0: to pursue other kind of content. Amazon has the same problem. So one of your true gifts as an investor, seriously, is adding a level of practicalness to an investment case. So as opposed to just like looking at numbers on QuickFS or in a model and being like, oh, I think it's cheap. I think it's expensive. So how did you do that? Then you were thinking through, like take us through that process that you just talked about of being like, oh, I think it's impossible that all of the product and stuff like that. Well, you can just look at who the big movie studios are.
1: And once they started up their streamers, then this became a problem. Um, it, it became a more serious problem, obviously when Disney and Fox uh, merged. But it's been a problem for a while that it was going in this direction. Um, Netflix may come up with other ways to create content so far. It hasn't been very successful. I mean, Netflix, Amazon, Apple have obviously spent incredible amounts of money for very bad returns and trying to create content. Um, it's hard to value the returns. We don't know. This is even an issue where we're talking about light year with Disney. How much harm did it do to them? DC, um, some things that they released with HBO max, um, during the pandemic. How much harm did it do? They got a lot less value from those properties. Um, Disney may have done permanent harm in some ways to the Pixar brand, it, but it helped grow Disney Plus. So maybe, it's a, uh, maybe that's a big advantage from it. But is that part of the reason why something like Lightyear isn't doing as well as it used to do? And then if you're making a lot less money from that, is that a really big issue? Um, without a theatrical release, movie to Netflix or Amazon or someone like that uh, is a pretty expensive proposition because you're not offsetting a huge amount of the, the cost with the theatrical release so that it's a lot to pay for what you're getting out of it. And they certainly had a few hits, but um, I mean, I think a lot of the issue is, as you can imagine, the loss of some pretty big um, comfort food type, large series, large libraries of stuff that they've lost to other um, networks. I mean, the thing that, that you don't want to lose things like the office. Um, Paramount is using, you know, they're all doing this. You don't have catalogs of a lot of this stuff that you'd like to have. Paramount isn't going to put Star Trek on other things anymore. Um, Universal isn't going to put the different things like The Office and stuff that they have on um, other channels anymore. And so once they keep it to themselves, what do you have? You have to have a lot more new content all the time to try to bring people in. And then you might have more churn, um, which is fine if you have the idea of like a winner takes all type business. And I just never believe that that's the case with a company like this that it would make a huge difference. If you spend a lot more money to get big fast, would that really help? I think that's the only way they could survive. And I'm impressed by how they survived in the early years. But some of these companies, Netflix and Amazon, um, probably have had more antagonism with Hollywood stuff than they should have and have put themselves in a dangerous situation because of that, when they should have found ways to acquire something, work with it whatever especially with weaker players that they could have
0: gotten advantage with like sony or something what do you think the game plan should be for netflix going forward now they're talking about probably going into advertising so yeah, yeah you think probably. so yeah so what you if don't they're charge gonna, if they're not
1: gonna buy a movie studio or be able to spend a lot of money on production of stuff um i think with lower quality content you have a lot of and especially if you're very global which i think netflix can be very global um then i think advertising would make a lot of sense and then also the internet i think advertising potentially has a an ability to be fairly high rates that you can get for things so i would expect a lot of advertising yeah and that may also be realistic in terms of trying to avoid churn but i, I don't know that that's a very big issue with like inflation and stuff can they really raise rates all these companies have this problem theoretically i think investors assumed i don't think they assume anymore but i think they assumed before that somehow these companies would be able to raise rates right and when inflation is very low you might be able to but the customer acquisition costs and everything are so high and the advantage of having additional audiences so high that the risk to any subscription business is you can never raise rates high enough it's the same problem that insurance companies have you always want to raise rates lower than you should and like average it out smoothly over a long period of time because the cost would be so great if you increased it too fast. So if inflation is ten percent a year, you can't raise your rates ten percent a year, because raising them that much would lose some of your customers, which are too uh, expensive to reacquire. So instead, you always try to say, well, I think on average inflation will be five percent in a year over the next few years, not ten percent, and then two percent, and then you know, and so you try to smooth it out and make it less. Um, lumpy that way and you know that there's certain thresholds that if you don't go above people won't cancel but if you do too big a move at times people will cancel obviously introducing advertising onto planes that did not previously have advertising
0: would lead to a lot of cancellations um from the perspective of i don't want to use netflix anymore or from the perspective of oh i paid 20 bucks a month i don't mind to watch a few commercials i'm gonna cancel my 20 bucks or whatever it is subscription and just go the ad route
1: uh the first one
0: okay yeah yeah
1: um it will it would segment people Mm -hmm. you know i push them each direction you may be able to charge more for some people um but it is hard to go from a pure approach one way or the other a very pure ad approach the youtube approach or a pure pay approach the hbo approach um can both work a lot and they target completely different things youtube with very low quality content and stuff and a lot of it and hbo with high quality content and very very little of it um but they're able to charge you a lot of money for it you know whereas the problem that netflix has is they have a few things that might be very in demand for people but there's actually only a few during the entire year so people might be in the habit of canceling more often. Netflix has also made it fairly easy to cancel. And so it has that issue. Um, Like I said, I think that it will last for a very long time. Once you've built up such a large audience base, um, the fact that you don't have a lot of supply, you'll be able to pay for supply and get it. and, And you'll be able to make it work out if you have one or the other. Um... And I think it's hard to build an audience that large. So I think once something has an audience that large, it'll be successful in some way. But I do think it's a it's a major problem. But it, we've also seen hints recently that they've completely changed some of their approach to content stuff. I mean, they've canceled some things that cost them lots of money and stuff. And so um, I think they've they've radically changed what they'll be
0: spending on content. They're going to be doing more in-house stuff. I don't know what
1: they'll be doing. I think they'll be more careful and more traditional in terms of what they do. I think they greenlit some things to spend a ton of money on them; that they won't do anymore. So, so like Stranger Things. Oh no, I think they'd pay pay for things like Stranger Things and stuff. They had a show, Space Force. Okay. I think is a really good example of the kind of thing they will not do anymore. Um, they basically have sometimes just done things because of the people involved, without any idea of what the product is. And they spend incredible amounts of money on it. And that's something that they'll probably shy away from doing. So I I think Netflix, HBO did this for a while too. HBO had movies of the week uh, decades ago. And one of the things that would happen, Showtime and and, um, Cinemax and stuff did the same things. But HBO was known for this. They had like an approved list. So they had like a list of like 50 people and it would circulate around. And, uh, basically what it meant is if you can, uh, producers and creators and stuff, if you can get us a, um, movie that has some of the people on this list, we'll make it regardless of what it is. So if somehow this, and they weren't huge stars, it's just, they had some sort of built in thing. So if you can somehow get a movie that has, um, you know, um, Let's say it was Chuck Norris and Sinbad are in the movie. Okay, we can make that. It doesn't matter what it is. They just had they just would study consumer trends mm-hmm. and know that based on what people were watching, if that was if certain people were in it, two or three different people in it, um, that they would make it regardless of what kind of movie it was and stuff, up to a certain budget. But basically divided up the stars that way. Um, Netflix did some stuff that was kind of like that. Um, where they were clearly greenlighting things based entirely on um, data that they had on who uh, people wanted to see. So, you know, I'm sure that Sandra Bullock could do anything she wanted on Netflix because they had some data that if Sandra Bullock was in something, people would watch Mm -hmm. it, you know? Ryan Reynolds? Yeah, so... Seems (laughs) like he does a lot on Netflix. Um, So uh, there are just certain things that they knew worked, Right. Um, and I think they, we may see less of that. On the other hand, they probably gathered lots of data on what foreign things they can have that they can dub and will work. What things you can take from another country and remake and it will work. Um, things that are a lot more budget friendly that way. They may also reduce the total number of things that they drop onto Netflix and focus a little bit more on a smaller number of them and marketing them more and stuff. That's another issue is maybe whether they should spend more on marketing. What they need to do is find some way to smooth things out over an entire year so people don't cancel and reacquisition costs are high and stuff like that. Um, because they, you know, um, other streaming services have a better ability to do that than Netflix has. Netflix has been pretty lumpy in terms of w- what um, things are huge – viewing things that people want to see and when they happen during the year. And part of that can also be that could they consider having something not have one season a year? Could we take something that's, you know, um, eight episodes right now and we put it out all at once and instead divide it into three mini seasons of four episodes each and release them at three different times during
0: the year? It's kind of like what Ozarks did. i've seen mm-hmm. a lot more shows do that where it's like part one four right. episodes and then part two another mm-hmm. four episodes could they do that could they do, it Drives me crazy right could, drives me crazy but i come back and i watch it but so maybe, maybe they
1: know you know that if if it's coming out within the next six weeks no one will cancel right but maybe ah, if it's coming out six months from now people short. will cancel mm-hmm. um so all of those things are, are a factor but they probably spent too much to drive new subscriber additions. I, th- I think that's probably the thing that they'll notice the most. And that was probably driven by Wall Street. I don't know, you know, that they realized how valuable an additional subscriber was. And so having a lot of new subscribers was more helpful um, to their stock market value. And they may focus a little bit less on that, a little bit more on saving money. And they might also focus more on reducing the amount of churn that they have on like a, instead of gross, having more new gross subscribers. That net subscriber additions can be achieved by having less cancellation and then finding other ways to monetize which might make sense too um and the combination of all of those i mean obviously the advertiser supported media things have turned out to be the most profitable for the most part with very few exceptions they're the most profitable in old media too i mean like hbo had a model that made sense but generally showing ads is what made you money it wasn't other approaches to it, and I th- we don't have data on it, but I think if we looked at YouTube versus Netflix, we'd say, oh, actually, YouTube is a pretty profitable operation, mm-hmm. which is based on
0: you know on on um, advertisers. What's the creative process like in the show business? Because I've heard of some directors or some actors that eventually produce and direct. They'll be like, oh yeah, I read this script that was ten years old. And I thought, oh, I could bring this to life and make a film out of it. I Mm -hmm. mean, is there just a library somewhere of all these scripts that you can turn Mm -hmm. into movies? I mean, I know like Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings, all these were books and stuff like that. nope. Um,
1: studios have hundreds of scripts. Just people writing
0: different different ideas and stuff. (laughs) The
1: truth is that probably some of the most ever paid for some of the scripts that the most were ever paid for a single script have never been made. They're paid during the 90s some studios has paid incredible amounts to buy specific scripts there's a there's a script boom in the 90s worth original content that was bought from scripts it's almost never done now um that are really big things that aren't based on anything and there were a couple that were a couple million dollars paid out to someone and they never made the script and it will never be made so wow. but it's not that much when you think about it because obviously a, a huge script sale would be like two million dollars if they really paid it that would be unbelievable it never happens um for a movie it's a somewhere between one and a couple percent of the movie it's Sure, a big yeah. blockbuster movie so what does it matter um yeah but i don't know an average
0: um i mean who holds the record for the most amount of scripts sold and made or maybe just sold in general oh well there's you two. just don't hear about that much you see the movie you don't hear about like oh the script process who actually wrote it how that all came about
1: yeah, so I mean most they t- Thunderbird Entertainment talks a little bit about it um because I noticed that investors would write it up as if it was something unique like they would say Thunderbird pays about 10% down in an option and stuff. Uh, that's how almost everything's done. So Thunderbird just lays it out in their investor presentation, but normally they pay an option of about 10% or something to option it for a short time and then you pay the other 90% if you want to acquire the whole thing. Um, there are it's all unionized, so there are minimum requirements. I don't know what they are right now. Let's say it was 130000 or something, then you pay $13,000 down. Um, against the idea that you'll have to pay the additional 130000 when you buy it. Sometimes you have rights issues. Uh, you mentioned Top Gun Maverick, which is a legal issue right now because of um, COVID, they failed to make the movie in time and release it. Um, On a schedule that you would normally need to do to maintain the rights because it's based on an article the original top gun was based on an article because of that that runs into a problem because you need to make it to maintain the rights sometimes movies are made purely to maintain rights so for instance there's a fantastic four movie that no one's ever seen made by uh, i think roger corman it's a very low budget thing um it's purely had to be made for rights reasons to maintain because otherwise the studio would lose the rights to um
0: uh, um. um to, to like a marvel property why not release it uh because it's terrible okay so they made it didn't like it said, i don't hey, i don't believe have the rights it, i don't believe it was ever it. made
1: with the intention of actually releasing it and stuff it was made purely to maintain the rights in that case i think um uh yeah and so sometimes it requires that you release in a large enough format like that it has to have a generally large release or something after COVID there may be more instances of that because there were some cases where a movie was intended to be released and then it was actually released on um uh streaming right so what was it Black Widow there's a lawsuit sure. involving yeah I believe the legendary movies um so like mm-hmm. Dune and movies like that that involved Legendary and Warner Brothers there were lawsuits over those, um you know Godzilla some other ones um there were lawsuits involved with that because some movies have people getting a percentage of something. So like um, DreamWorks Animation was a public company, so we know these details. They generally paid about 10% of the worldwide box office for a sequel to the voice cast. Um, so if their average movie was expected to make $500 million, that meant there was a $50 million bonus pool that was a va- that was paid out to the main actors, you know, whatever that was in that case. Um Jack Black and Lucy Lou and people like that. Um, so uh, that's what they, that, that's how they got most of their payment on sequels. Um, so obviously if they, uh, if the movie, if a pandemic had happened or something, then you have an issue because yeah. you basically agreed to not take pay of a meaningful amount uh-huh. and to instead get a percentage of box office. So, so then
0: what happens? I mean, even reading things, yeah. total recall with Arnold, some of their biggest films he took majority of his income on the back end
1: right so then there's
0: lawsuits and all those sorts of
1: things um and you know that was a problem that happened with covid and we'll see how it works out in future periods um but it's obviously a a concern that that could happen um and some a lot of times it gets settled you know um but normally that wouldn't be a way that you release it it's mostly to be honest i mean it Compared to a lot of businesses, that there's that kind of stuff at that level is fairly, it's more honest than you would think. I mean, if the studio says it's going to get a large release, they tend to give it a large release. It's known that that will happen and it does happen. Um, you know, even little things in the movie theater, 10Ks and stuff you can see, occasionally they're agreeing to show a movie because the studio wants it shown. For an actor or for someone they have a relationship with, even though it's not really a super blockbuster kind of thing to have. And so they get to book it for a few weeks at a large number of theaters that shows that they really put a lot of um, effort into it. And that may maintain the relationship, right? A lot of times that happens with someone where they go, okay, I want to make this movie that's way too small. It's not going to make enough money, but I'll do this one if you'll let me, uh, if I agree to do the really big movie. Then you'll have to release this one for me. And so there's been plenty of ones that are like
0: that. That happened in Entourage. I think they wanted Vinny Chase to do a, a large film, and he wanted to do more of a sensational like film that was close to him or something. And probably, I mean, uh, years ago when uh, uh, now going back decades, that
1: was the Tom Cruise approach. Tom Cruise actually half the movies he was in were were more um, dramatic type movies, and then half were more starring roles. Then he got really big with like Mission Impossible type stuff over time and did more and more of that and less and less of the other things. But yeah,
0: he he did that. Sure. He's such a good actor. So we have a few questions from listeners. And to be able to ask questions that we'll pull from the podcast, you could email them to me at focuscompound.com. All I ask is that you just put podcast in the subject line. I group them together. And if it's a question that I think would be great for the podcast, we'll just go over it like so. So somebody asked, when analyzing a bank, what do you look for in the FDIC call report that isn't disclosed in the 10K? Basically, why is it important to read the call report if the company files a 10K with the SEC? And they said, also, the same with insurance companies and the AMBEST report.
1: Um, I'm not sure that it is that important in many cases. It depends on how well they report things. Um... There are usually tables that provide much of the same information. So I, um, which is basically like breakdown of deposits, breakdown of um, the loan portfolio, what categories it's in, um, how much of it might reset under different uh, conditions. You know how much of it adjusts. Um, I'd you know I I don't know. I'd have to look at a lot more banks to know exactly whether it's significant Um, call reports for very large banks. I don't think are that helpful, but call reports for small banks might be also um, sometimes there's more extensive information and more timely information in the call report, but it depends on the bank. So I would assume with very large banks, it isn't really an issue that you'd have to worry about finding things there. Um, There's also total comparability. So they all classify things the same way, uh, you know, in the call report. Um, Whereas they may use somewhat different language in the 10 K. Sure. Yeah. That's a huge point. Yeah. Um, I would say for some companies, the call report does provide more information uh, because the company groups together things that in the call report are broken out. Um, So mostly with loan categories, the company might make it seem they're kind of lumping everything together in one category when in reality it, it, it may be um it may be more obvious in
0: the call report what the loans are against i guess sometimes the call report comes out before a 10q or a 10k
1: um yeah i'm thinking about that does that happen with companies that file with the sec or does that only happen with otc companies that file with a different regulator could be that yeah, so a bunch of banks file with the different regulators. It's not required, obviously, with a bank that you file with the SEC. You only have to file with the FDIC if you want to. Um, I mean, that's true for all companies, but w- other companies would not have a regulator that isn't the SEC. You know, you they won't be federally regulated by someone. So, yeah, you, you can file instead with the FDIC, and some banks do that. Even if you're on exchange, you can, and a few do. Um, there's a very small number of them
0: that do, maybe half a dozen. So once you're familiar with the bank, do you continuously read their call reports? I do read the call really report. Dependent? Yeah, I do read the call report every time. Yeah, got it.
1: Um, does a lot of change in it? No, but I do look through it. You know, so people who haven't read call report, it, it just has, um, it's just, it's just forms. It's just filled mm-hmm. out a bunch of forms. It would look like a tax return or something. I mean. It's very
0: standard, which is yeah. great. And mm-hmm. we do have a podcast on it, an actual video, so you could just type in on YouTube "focus compounding." fdic call reports and i'm sure video will pull up we did like a two-hour video a couple years ago but i would never suggest just reading the call report without having some reading about
1: um management discussion or a 10k or an annual report or something else to get more of an idea about the company um in terms of the insurance companies uh, am best does rate insurance companies sort of like um uh, Moody's and, and Fitch and S&P do for most companies that issue debt. But um, uh, so you can do that. And, and I read that just as I would for any company that has debt outstanding and is rated by credit agencies. Um, but then you can also find uh, reports filed with uh, insurance um, regulators and commissioners in each state. So it's a state-by-state thing instead of being a federal, um, but it would be similar to how they file with the FDIC. There's reporting that insurance companies do. Um, Of course, with both banks and insurance companies, but especially insurance companies, what you have to understand is you're probably looking at a holding company. Not always. There are actually public trade banks that aren't bank holding companies. But um, you're usually looking at a holding company, and so the reports that you're going to see are probably for a specific entity inside the group. So for instance, the insurance report you're going to see is for the that insurance company in that state, uh, which may be a very small portion of the overall business. Um, it, it may give lots more clues sometimes with insurance companies. If you read the different reports that they file with different states, that they may have a very good insurance operation in this state and not in that. Um, it gives you more information about where they're holding the insurance assets this um, so of the portfolio and stuff and um, sometimes all of it is in one place and not in a different state that they have and um, just a lot of different detail on that Um, so it's helpful I mean it's kind of like I would love it you know if for airlines or something you could see it route by route how profitable this is out of this airport on this route you know because you imagine that they probably don't make much of anything on a lot of their businesses but they make a lot on a few of them same thing with insurance companies certain lines in certain states, they may be making a lot of money and then they're in a lot of other places where they're probably not making anything. Um, So it gives a lot more detail that way. Um, But again, I don't think it's very comprehensible unless you're combining it with reading about the company overall and with reading some description for management and all that. I would never look at one of those reports uh, filed with regulators without understanding it. Um, I also see a lot of people Saying that stuff doesn't match between what's reported with regulators and what's in the 10K. It's a different approach to it. Um, It'd be like reading a company's tax filing and saying that it doesn't match the reported income. Um, There are reasons for each of the discrepancies. And sometimes it has to do with the rules about how they account for different things, how they group them together. Um, And usually you can resolve it by figuring out that there's actually two different things that they're, they're, they're um, two different categories that they're categorizing differently in one of the reports, either the 10K or the filing with the regulator, uh, that are actually like combined for a different purpose or something. So they're counting something differently. Um, so the obvious one with the insurance companies is that they report to
0: you on a gap basis, but the regulatory filings are on a statutory basis. Got it. If anyone wants to ask a question in the future, email me at FocusCompine.com. So a question that I've been getting a lot recently that people want us to go over is this idea of um, deciphering between a value stock or a value trap. At the heart of what we try to do as investors is knowing the difference between what's a great business and what's a great investment. Um, And especially through COVID, a lot of companies have experienced a lot of growth. So on TTM numbers, for example, some companies could screen cheap. We've talked a little bit about that in the past, but um, I wanted to talk about this idea of like business momentum to help decipher between Mm -hmm. the two things. Um, And I have one of the biggest risks for a value investor is buying into a business with poor business momentum. Um, And it's an issue because, you know, PE ratios, especially, I mean, when we do these valuations, it's all on TTM numbers. Um, But PE ratios, price to book ratios, even EBITDA ratios, whatever number you want to use, it's all about the past. And of course, investing is all about the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to sort of decipher, I mean, by definition, when you're looking at a value stock, maybe growth investors have punted it. Other investors are not, no longer involved. The stock looks cheap. I mean, the best case scenario is when just the stock price, if you look at like a chart, it just consolidates over a period of time and the business has done nothing but get, be- uh, get better. You mm-hmm. know, maybe growth investors leave. Other investors start to come in. Um, but, you know, how do you decipher between the two? And I guess a good example, I hate to always bring this up, but I think it really um, outlines it is when we talk about Microsoft, right? Like the stock right. continued to improve over mm-hmm. 10 years. Uh, but of course, you know, it's pretty tough to hold if you're an investor over that long period and the stock price has gone down to basically gone nowhere. But I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on how you think about deciphering between the two. Um being a value trap versus a value stock because there's some companies you look at and you're like yeah that's that company may be better than company XYZ but company XYZ could be a better investment
1: yeah um some of the things i do would be looking at stuff that isn't in the financial statements exactly so we talked about Netflix right so one of the obvious ones with Netflix would be what does it look like in terms of the um um like uh churn rates and also just like gross additions for things um so is it a situation that during covid or something like that they signed up a lot of people and then they had reductions in subscribers why did they have it right is it that they had the reduction because they'd signed up so many and so many quit so quickly after joining and so that's risky or is it that people who have been um, subscribers for a long time are canceling, or that you're slowing down in how fast you're able to add um, new subscribers? Those are all different factors. So for instance, just adding a lot of subscribers in a given period will mean that you'll have a lot of losses in the next period, because for most businesses, um, recently acquired customers churn at a much higher rate than customers that you've had for a while. That's true for any business. I mean, like most of the churn that you see with banks and insurance companies is very yeah. recent customers who leave. But even we did a report on uh, ad agencies and stuff and could even show that even in cases like that. Very recent customers. There's certain customers that change agencies a lot versus ones that are more likely to stay with you. And so if someone joined uh, in a period that was particularly high growth, then they would cancel in a in a future period, and that would directly lead to lower growth in that period. Is that what caused it, or is some other factors what caused it? Um, I think
0: Netflix even publicly has said that in you know retrospect, they should have looked at the growth they're experiencing through COVID, and instead of being like, "Oh, this is amazing," kind of be a little bit more skeptical towards it. I think they've actually gone on the record and have said that. Mm-hmm. So that would be one issue. Um, to, to
1: analyze is, so that's below the financial statements. Um, the other one would be trying to eliminate the effects of luck versus other factors. So, um, cause we were talking about movie things before, it's a very big difference, whether you get lucky with a particular release that you have or a TV series or whatever. And that drives things versus, um, things that might be related. So for instance, is there a sign that Netflix was spending too much on content that wasn't particularly good? Um, That kind of loose cost controls and greenlighting too many things is not luck. That's a strategy that might be a problem. But simply failing to have another Stranger Things or having hit on a Stranger Things in particular year is a lot of luck of what drives that exact um, thing that you have. So I would talk about that a lot when DreamWorks Animation was public. Any one movie is luck. It's it's luck and to some extent in how the audience responds to it, but it's also just luck in terms of the quality. You make some movies that are better than other movies, and th- that can't be what you judge. But the process is the process. Do we have signs that the process has gotten worse or better? And so if we have signs that they're spending too much money, is that something that we can see and that's a trend versus a bunch of flops? Um you know, I think a lot of times people will put too much emphasis on, like, two flops in a row. That's just, they would be like having a reinsurance company and having two horrible catastrophes in a row. It's just part of the business, and that's what you write, and, and that's what you do. Um, but having a pattern of partic- of a particular problem in terms of, um, like, cost issues or something like that would show up and, and be something that we could see in the business momentum. Um. Certain kinds of momentum are easier to see earlier on. Uh, And sometimes they break these. I mean, I worry about a lot of these because the only way people get this is through like investor presentations. Mm -hmm. So you could say things like, oh, the net promoter score in this. But Mm -hmm. it's only going to be given to you by the company. And um, I think that... Obviously, having a lot of organic growth without a lot of spending on advertising is going to be very helpful. That's something we could see using Netflix from earlier on in its history. It was very successful in spreading by word of mouth, even allowing people to share passwords and everything, that once people were exposed to it, they were then signed up for it. And that's a big, big advantage. For tech-type companies, which we do not invest in, but if I was going to, um very strong organic growth, not driven by marketing would be a major factor. I would avoid companies where a lot of marketing had to be spent to grow them as opposed to ones that grew organically virally um because that's something that could be continued in place after place you know so because like the product is so good, mhm-, I mentioned Dutch brothers in a in a recent podcast mm-hmm. they opened up in Coffee this area, shop. yeah, they opened up in this area and have had you know lines out the uh, um no, not the door because they are a drive through <laughs> but lines out of the parking lot for a long time. Now, they have less now than they did when they opened. But when they opened, there was obviously a lot of uh, pent-up demand for. It. People were aware of what it was. People came to it, and it was an event. Um, I don't know that they'll have the lines that Chick-fil-A has three or four years after they open a location, You know, which is a better indicator probably. But certainly, they had very strong um response in mm-hmm. an area that probably doesn't have a great awareness for it. So you can see that and say, okay, well, can this be ported over into many different um locations? Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about that when we talked about uh Chewy's or something like that, which is only in a certain number of states. You could kind of imagine what the momentum will be of it in the future if you can see it clearly in one place. And again, they kind of lay it out for you in the investor presentation, but a lot of times that's kind of aspirational. That's what they hope that their four wall economics are and everything. It's better to look and see if they're successful in one location and see how it goes
0: from there. So we've talked a lot about how over the short term, the price you pay matters, mm-hmm. i.e. the multiple. And over the long term, it's much more about the actual internal returns that the business generates how do you have your cake and eat it too? So you want to pay a low multiple for a business that you know is actually a much better business than people think. And I think it's hard because if you're buying that company at a cheap multiple, there's probably a lot of, I don't want to call it issues, but there's a reason that people are selling it. I mean, very rarely, other than when you get these huge shocks in the market, can you pick up just companies that are completely on sale? Um, So in a normal environment, how do you sort of work through that dichotomy?
1: Well, uh, some of it is the attractiveness of the industry and the willingness of investors to participate in that industry. So trying to find companies that are what Peter Lynch were talking about, fast growers and slow-growing industries. Let's try um, Alphabet. Let's look at Alphabet and see if I can it.
0: Why did they change their name to Alphabet? It's like Facebook going to Meta. I could see that. They want to be branded. But why did? is it because they want to be more of like a holding company that invests in all these other things? That is
1: one possible reason. Yeah. yeah. The other possible reason is, of course, um, regulatory. Ah. Huh. So mm-hmm. if you're a regulated company that might have negative perceptions of your company, obviously you change the name of your company to further remove it from the product that you're making to protect the product. And to have people maintain good associations with the product while having anything that happens in public have to happen with a, a company that has a negative perception to their name. You know? I see.
0: So like the FTC is criticizing Alphabet. Right. People won't associate with Google. Got it.
1: Yeah. Got it. Got it. Um, you know, and so if you appear before Congress, you're CEO of Alphabet or whatever. <laughs> <you know. laughs> yeah. Um, that sort of thing. That might be part of it too. But uh, yeah, I think it was a holding company thing that they wanted to do. Um, so... This is an interesting one because there's a lot of evidence, I think, that their core business is very good um, and that their investments and in other things haven't been as great. But if you see, you have um, revenue growth is very high. EPS growth is a bit slower. Um, we talked about over-the-counter market. So let's do OTCM. So in this case, revenue growth was 21%. Thanks share growth was 22%. In the case of over-the-counter markets, revenue growth a 12.5%. EPS, 19%. Um, so a bit slower, right? Um, but throughout much of that period, it was cheaper than Google, than Alphabet. However, not so much anymore. Um, but that was because it's a less, it could be because it's a less well-known company, it could be because it's small, whatever. But there's plenty of small companies that are very high priced. It's more likely that people, um, it's not as exciting an industry to be in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a good indication of that um so that's why we look at overlooked stocks but that also just is true in general of industries that the same company with the same growth in a um industry that's less attractive to people um is going to have you know you're going to be able to get a better price we've talked about that certainly before with um certainly it's true very very true in insurance and banking so you can find growth stocks, in insurance, and banking that are priced like not growth stocks because those aren't growth industries and they don't attract growth investors. It's very hard to find them in other kinds of um, businesses that have a lot to do with like information technology, things like that, because those industries attract a lot of people who want to participate in that sort of um, growth. So finding a, um, a less... Uh, less of an industry that people want to participate in makes a lot of sense if you want to find a kind of lower price that way um i talked about once before with the ethanol company thing where the whole point of what i was doing in a write-up was saying they're both going to be ethanol companies but one has the name ethanol in it now the other one does not but one day maybe it will you know um but they're essentially the exact same business there wasn't a things that attach people to specifically wanting to speculate in ethanol things. They wanted the name to be ethanol. And so um, companies that are a little, people are a little less aware of what's inside the company could be cheaper that way, lower profile, not the industries people want to speculate in right now. So avoiding industries that people want a lot of speculation in right now can sometimes find you better prices, you know, things
0: that are a little more out of favor. So that ethanol situation, I mean, Mm -hmm. was that, Did that just come from being familiar with the company? Did the commentary from the managers or how they were communicating their business change? How did you know that they were going to potentially change their name one day to reflect an ethanol company? I mean, you've spoken about you love it when you find a company and their name doesn't give any hint of what the business actually is. Right. Yep. And that might necessarily not be true if it was
1: uh, an unpopular industry at the time. But if you have strong growth or something, then that's what you want to find. Yeah, and that's an example. They were selling off uh, other assets and buying ethanol things, so it was clear what they were doing. Um, Instead of companies that sometimes companies present them. The the other opposite is what you want to avoid, of course, is companies that present themselves even more as one sort of thing and aren't that um and they can get much higher multiples for that reason like we're the netflix of
0: that's the classic one yeah
1: someone asked me about fico before and what what what, uh multiple i pay for and everything um fico's an interesting company it has had very good growth the last couple years sort of it's had very good growth in earnings per share i think right let's see
0: earnings per share yeah 10-year median earnings per share is 23 percent um 10-year Kager for revenue 7.8 percent right
1: um, however, from like, so for instance, uh, earnings per share growth, what's the earnings per share growth since the so 2019 it was up 50%, 2020 25%, uh, and then 2021 70%. However, revenue growth was only 16%, 12%, 2%, which is basically in line with what it had been for a long time. It's, it's less stable, but it's actually not that different from the 8% revenue total that they had before. Um, uh in terms of 10-year growth in revenue uh so that's an interesting example because so earnings have gone up a bunch so that's something for people to be interested in but it it has slightly presented itself to the public a little differently than it did 10 years ago or so when i was talking about it talking about buying it and and all that which you know i did buy back then um a little bit more than 10 years ago actually and uh that may result in it having a higher multiple than it had before uh, because it presents is more itself more in line with software as a service which it's doing more of is offering more um and that may change its actual business where it offers more on a um, subscription basis than it does on a per transaction basis i guess you could say although i don't know how big the difference is you know because they're pretty big relationships um and then it also presents itself more based on the idea of the data stuff of predictive analytics. But that's always been something that they've always done. How difference is the, different is the business really? And a lot of the operating profit still comes from the same business, the scoring business, and less so from the other parts of the business that they talk a little bit more about. But they've sort of present themselves in a way now that maybe is a little more attractive to getting investors interested in it from the last three years or so than it was 10 years ago. I don't think and 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 some of that is the company's actually changed, and the world has changed um, but some of it is also just how you choose to present yourself so it it may get more interest from people than if they uh presented themselves as um if you know as a company that serves the financial services industry in the United States and grows at about you know the rates that those things grow at. Do you remember the multiple
0: you paid for FICO?
1: paid about 10 times free cash flow um it goes back a little bit earlier than where this is probably about a year or so earlier than where this ends um it's possible it was i don't think it was much more than that um, so i mean were I there issues
0: the, at the company
1: well i mean we just had a so out of two, 2008 contraction sure. yeah so I, I don't think that there's been much growth in the company to be completely, I mean, they, they've they done some other things, but I, I think that there's relatively little growth in the last 10 years other than cyclical growth. Um, Their market share was huge 10 years ago. It's huge today. Uh, I, I don't think that underlying there's much growth in anything other than that. But there's been a recovery in credit things and in the number of transactions that would use FICO scores of 8% or something a year, that sounds reasonable. Um. They've expanded to some slightly different things, but um, in terms of earnings per share, they've used their money to buy back stock and, and done things like that. So that has definitely changed things. Um, uh, however, that was more aggressive in the period where I was looking at it. What, what changed it was I thought they would buy back a bunch of stock, and you know that, that had more influence on it than anything else, and also just increase in the a cyclical increase in terms of your results. I mean so what does I that mean? Well I didn't know how much they would grow in the cycle and everything, but if you're buying at the bottom of a multi-generational credit cycle or something and they they make money on each transaction that has to do with running a application or something for credit things, then the amount of applications for credit it you know determines kind of what you're um gonna make as a company. So just credit activity is what matters. Mm-hmm. And so you just figured that it's going to grow a lot in the future because you're at a cyclical bottom you know Um, if you try to kind of pick the point at which things seem the darkest in terms of the cycle then you would expect a big um increase from from that and so that's why i did it back then um but my point was just in terms of how they present themselves if you read their annual reports now and everything they they definitely present themselves much more technology oriented than they did back then although they were very technology oriented then they are now but it maybe uses a little bit more of the kinds of words that analysts would be interested in i think they use um dollar based retention rates for instance and i don't remember them doing anything like that 10 years ago
0: like they'll say this amount of our sales is reoccurring what does that mean yeah yeah
1: so they'll say things like we retained 106 percent of our dollar on a dollar basis, meaning that we lost so so maybe we retain we lost five percent of our clients, but we raised prices by ten percent or something. Mm-hmm. So, given a certain client, how much more money do we make than we did the year before? We make six percent more or something. You know, a lot of these kinds of companies may present things that way to show that their retention rates are higher than they otherwise would be because the traditional way of doing a retention rate is whether you retain the customer, not whether you retain the total amount of dollars. If the dollars increases faster than the customers, then in a sense you're retained uh your your retained revenue the revenue that you have on a recurring basis uh, goes up over time and that's something that was very people were very big on recurring revenue in the last 10 years so companies that use those kinds of words might be able to get higher um valuations on their stock
0: so value stock or value trap the one company that a lot of people like to ask about in recent times Meta platforms, Facebook.
1: Yeah, I don't know anything about Facebook. I always say all the numbers look great. and I don't know why it's down and everything, but maybe culturally people are very aware
0: of why it should be down and they have a good understanding of it. I'm not sure. Because if you look at this, I mean, you look at their revenue growth, you look at their gross profit growth, you look at everything. To me, unless like what you just said, there's some sort of overshadowing narrative that's tainting the company. Um, Yeah, it looks like uh, it's looking pretty cheap.
1: Yeah, I mean, some of the narrative things, I guess, would be um, everything will be TikTok, right? Things like that. Um, People won't spend any time on Facebook. Um, Privacy things will change so that Facebook's ads will not be as effective. Uh, They're not as popular with younger people as they are with older people.
0: Do you think it's easier to judge a value stock from a value trap out of like a cyclical bottom? As it relates to that example you just sure. gave with FICO. So, right. So a major issue. As opposed to just like everything you just worded. Oh, privacy, TikTok, their ads aren't going to be as effective. With FICO, you're like, oh, we just came out of a huge credit crunch.
1: Mm-hmm. But there, but there may be people who believe that the FICO score will be replaced by something else. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess so. I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know. Matter doesn't seem like it's that difficult to figure out that way. Now they are. I think one thing that is difficult is that they're deciding to spend a ton of money on something else. Mm-hmm. It, I don't know how big it. I mean, look, they make so much from operating profit. <laughs> what is that it? Ten billion a year? I think we is it decided. More than that? I don't know.
0: Yeah, <laughs> but they just make so much money
1: yeah so even if you adjust for that and you say okay all that's wasted they're still trading at less than 20 times earnings or something um stock-based compensation is fairly large right so cash flow from operations we have to take out stock-based compensation and then take out yeah i mean we are down to let's see okay so let's look at what this um what's the market cap on this thing five hundred thirty two billion so it is more like 15 times free cash flow actually what does it say here the free cash flow is 12 that's yeah. not really right because they're diluting their stock so that's which, ev
0: so that takes into account their balance okay sheet. their
1: balance sheet so yeah it's over 15 times actually if you do the calculation of what it really is in terms of owner earnings if we assume that they're spending on things like the metaverse is useless um, maybe it'll be very useful But uh, if we assume that that's wasted money and we assume that they have to offset their stock compensation, then actually you're paying you know 16 times um, free cash flow or something for this company. But that's not a high price for a rapidly growing business and a very large business. um, No, obviously it looks very attractive. I mean, compared to most all the companies that we talk about, it looks, Mm -hmm. it looks much more attractive on all the numbers. It looks great. Yeah, sure. I don't know anything about it. Um, it's also in an industry that's usually very attractive. Once you're a well-established um, advertising-supported media company, you, you tend to do really, really well. Um, they also have things that are very valuable. They have a ton of information on people, which tends to be very valuable because that, that's something that's very easily turned into profit in a lot of different ways. Um, ultimately, that would probably be a way that Netflix could make some money. Netflix has a lot of information on people on exactly how you use it, how you respond to things, how you can tweak everything to change user behavior. If you combine that, you know, we, we can, you know, Netflix won't just use here's the cover of this TV series. They can use alternate covers of it. They can rearrange how everything's presented to you, language about everything, descriptions of the company, of the movies. They can do all sorts of things to slightly encourage you to watch one thing instead of another to keep you watching all the time. There's lots of things they can do different from linear TV. So that's something that can be when combined with advertising stuff can be very powerful. You know, it, they know the things about you online that like a supermarket would know about you offline. And so that, that can definitely be a more profitable way of um, monetizing things. And it, traditionally it's, you know, hugely profitable. I mean, it's a much, like we said, it's a much more profitable way of doing it than having people than having, charging people money. Um, we've seen that about everything on the internet, that stuff that doesn't charge you any money has been incredibly successful in becoming the dominant platform. That's all that Google is, right? I mm-hmm. mean, Gmail is just something that's a free um, service that then can monetize it for advertising. YouTube, same idea. Um, and Google search is the same idea. And you know, meta falls right into that whole category that way.
0: Are there any other vital signs, if you will, Things that you look at like, okay, well, gross profit continues to improve or maybe their cash conversion continues yeah. to improve. Their inventory continues in uh, inventory turns. I mean, I'm reading a book on when Tim Cook took over Apple and something that he really improved at Apple was their inventory turns and how mm-hmm. that freed up their cash flow. Um, different things like that. Yeah. So that can
1: obviously be more, uh, that, that can drive a lot more successful um, outcomes in terms of the financial stuff. Um, in terms of the business momentum of just like um, uh, their position in the marketplace and all that kind of stuff, um, I think maybe it's sometimes easier to look at how they did versus a particular part of the cycle. So I kind of mentioned in another one of uh, the podcast that we did, Front Door, and it's not that I'm against Front Door. Uh, I'd looked at it before, and I like the business model. Um like the company fine their market position fine i wasn't terribly impressed by the numbers i was seeing given where we were in a cycle um and i guess that's more sort of what i, what I was saying so if you look at the combination of how things work together the revenue growth is fine 8 to 9% a year every year but given that you had 8 to 9% growth with no profit growth in a period that wasn't particularly um, hard or unusual. Um, It actually was a somewhat good period for some real estate stuff, which is one of their channels. Um, So that part kind of worried me a little bit, uh, just in terms of if that means that there's some, if they're bumping up against problems in the um, industry in terms of how big they are versus the low-hanging fruit of how much they can grow, if their marketing is as effective as it could be, um, and and um, you can see that with other companies, where if the growth is pretty good but the profitability is increasing each uh, year with the same level of growth, then it's not as worrying. So it's not the level of, of growth that's the problem it's the growth that they had wasn't at a particularly difficult part of the cycle, shouldn't have been. And the profitability was, you know, somewhat down really. Then that means maybe you're trying to grow faster than you really should be, or that the effectiveness of your marketing isn't as good as it should be, or that you're having too much churn. Um, and the same sort of things when we evaluate companies like Netflix or whatever. I mean, we can go to Netflix and, uh, as an example, but um, the issue here is you have to look at the specific years and what happened in them. So, for instance, what, did they have amazing growth in um, COVID? No, they didn't. Everyone got very excited about the stock during COVID, as they did some other stocks. Mm-hmm. Zoom had amazing growth during COVID. But a lot of these companies, they didn't really have amazing growth during COVID. I don't think the numbers were that impressive compared to what they had been before. If you didn't know that COVID happened, can you tell from looking at the 10-year chart that it did?
0: From Netflix? No. No. I mean, they were doing... So that, I mean, it's actually that should the, be worrying because what uh, should what would be the first thing everyone should do
1: during COVID? They should all subscribe to Netflix. Sure, yeah. And yet there was not some big, huge pickup in terms of the revenue that we're seeing. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the profitability, all that stuff, It you know, um, we do have a big jump in margins. It's worth mentioning that margins increase a lot at Netflix with scale. Um, But that would just be the kind of thing that you want to weigh. Okay, what happened there? Um, It's not that it's bad. It's fine. You're a very big company. As you get bigger, this this happens, and it could be weighing against you. But you have to understand how they did in a certain period to get a real read on the business momentum. You don't want to confuse things so that you're thinking, "Oh, FICO is growing so fast in the early years of the 2010s, when really everything about credit is growing really fast." Mm-hmm, you know, sure, yeah. Um, and and the same thing here with um, with Netflix is that I I don't see in its record. I see a very good offering that people are very excited about, and that keeps growing because of that. I don't see radical changes in business momentum. For me, looking at the tenure chart, people can go on FS and look at this. But I see something that is the same business model being used repeatedly, and that is working in much the same way throughout that period. Now, the operating results and the earnings look like they go up a lot, but that's because of the economies of scale. This is the kind of thing you can see this with every streaming company. They lose very large amounts of money in their early years, it takes several years to get to break even. Once they pass break even, then they start to make money. It's a huge um, level they have to get past. It's a very, very. It's a, a model that only makes sense at gigantic scale. Uh, and because of that, I think that's where you're seeing a lot of the the um, differences. Um, you otherwise are seeing pretty stable. Um, numbers in terms of like revenue growth and some of the other things that we're seeing so i don't see a radical change in business momentum but i don't see anything real slowing in business Mm -hmm. momentum
0: i was gonna say i mean is that good enough at the certain price where you have a a, a pretty good amount of revenue i would classify that as you know high i get it through covid you would have thought differently yes but it's eps no it's excellent yeah
1: okay the difference that i have with net Say netflix versus meta my only concerns with that are not a business momentum concern it's competitive positioning concern meta is in businesses in which you get free content from people who are willing to give it over to you um and they they get it uh, it doesn't cost them anything to give it to you so it's it's spontaneously generated that way it's almost like running a classifieds business or something strong network effects mm-hmm. yeah um Netflix is in a business of a, of trying to get content from companies that are in a strong position to bargain with them. They're, they're not. I mean, if, if you had to say, what is a better business, Netflix or YouTube, you would think YouTube because people are willing to put up things. People are basically willing to work for free for you. Whereas Netflix, they not only are they not willing to work for free for you, if they had a choice, they would probably prefer to control the content themselves. Because they've created the content and spent a lot of money on it. And if it was the same results, they're going to get one way or the other. They're going to get the same audience on Netflix or on their own things. They're probably going to put on their own things. So if anything, there's a bias against you. That's where I worry about it, like going into the future. But that's a totally speculative issue that we may not see in the results that they have now. Um, and if anything, people are more concerned about, like, competition pulling away subscribers. I would be more concerned about, uh, about supply. That there's this issue that they have with supply um, and not with demand.
0: Um, So the actual product, the quality of the product. Accessibility. Getting it on their own platform versus other ones. Yeah, accessibility of it.
1: They can be denied a lot of the content that they would like to have. And so that's a major issue. And that's not true in a lot of industries. In a lot of industries, you won't be denied content. Uh, you won't be denied the product. Um, you can buy it on mostly similar terms to everyone else. But in some industries, you may be disadvantaged in access to the product that you need to sell. And I think that that's likely an issue for Netflix. It's so a likely an issue
0: for anyone trying to buy from Hollywood. Is Disney in a better place because they have more of a library from all of their content through the years compared to Netflix?
1: Yeah. Yeah. But so by the way, so to some extent it's Paramount and so's Warner. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah, because they have a lot of content that way. Um and they have the ability to presumably pump out a lot more content better than Netflix does.
0: Um because of capital?
1: Well, they own IP. Mm-hmm. They also have a way of rolling it out in theaters that Netflix hasn't shown an ability to do or a desire to do. Um So far, we haven't seen any evidence that that internet-based companies have had any success in competing with Hollywood stuff on their terms, being able to create any of the same sort of stuff and monetize in the same ways. We'll see if maybe that changes one day, Uh, but it hasn't so far. And so I think that given the amount of money you're putting into some of these things, the returns that you're getting in terms of um, the stuff that you own that you could use in the future is not so great. Um, that is the issue that you have there. Um, You know, uh, if if HBO makes Game of Thrones and stuff and they own something that's a very valuable property that they can Mm -hmm. use in the future and that they can create other things off of that IP, they secure the rights to and are able to do that. Um, Same company, by the way, has Harry Potter. Um, And so being able to spend all that money, even if some things aren't a success right now, their latest... I think in the Harry Potter stuff wasn't a was any big success that you'd expect them to repeat that. Um, they are able to always go back to things and create stuff off of it based on what they they did with making money in the past. Um, it's not captured in the financial statements. There's a lot of things in the entertainment stuff that you could build a big. Um, it, it creates a lot of goodwill. So there's you know. Having successful movies, having successful franchises, creates a lot of uh, of an asset that you can monetize later, or have the potential to at a later time if you go back to and make money off of it. Um, that isn't captured in the statements initially. I'm not as sure that that's true for Netflix, and so that's a like we said, sort of a business momentum thing. There's a lot of stuff that's kind of underreported in the and the financial results for what it would be in the future because the value of a hit is higher than it appears to be Um, for content if you own it and stuff as opposed to distributing it where distributing it you know you don't have access to it in the future um, to be able to go back and control it and to make money off of it the same way so that's a problem that you're going to have I mean it's a good example this is why it's hard to tell with these things But a good example is Games Workshop, which is a company that I failed to buy and that I recognized had a huge amount of, if you want to call it untapped potential or whatever, which was that it was significantly under-earning relative to its, um, how much fans cared about it and how much it was possibly capable of of earning. This is true for a lot of things in entertainment stuff that we can see. Um, You know, Marvel basically, Take Marvel movie stuff, right? They've done 20-some movies over, um, what is it now? About um, 14 years, I think, 2008 is basically when it starts. So you think about, like, Iron Man or something. So um, in that time, they've made all of the money that they've made, right? Mm-hmm. But they had the things they're basing their movies off of are comic books that date about about 50 years, a little bit less maybe. But about 50 years prior to that first movie coming out so they're basing on characters that had existed in in various forms um, making very little money for them for half a century and then they're monetizing it over the last decade and a half so you have 50 years of building up that value and then 15 years of exploiting it Mm -hmm. in that form sure um that's what we're talking about about with business momentum things that you don't see in the financial statements and that's what happened with games Workshop. And you've seen a radical change in their earnings. And my mistake in not buying it, there was a change in the CEO and stuff, um, was that I knew, um, I, I obviously could not predict that it would have the earnings growth that it has recently. But I did. if you ask me what company is most under-earning its potential, it was Games Workshop. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't any question about it that it was Games
0: Workshop. Makes it so challenging because you could look at where it's currently at, like, oh, it's you know, on a TTM basis, it's 17 times earnings. Mm -hmm. Um, But how do you get comfortable with that 2021 earnings not being a peak earnings or free cash flow not being peak free cash flow? Because I've brought this up to you Mm -hmm. and you said, yeah, but did you see the couple of years before it? You know, so it's Mm -hmm. like getting comfortable with. Yeah. Um, So, is it cheap, or is if you average out, you know, we always use a three-year average. Right. It may not be as cheap, and that could be the wrong thing to do. I mean, is it getting comfortable with? Oh, is this growth repeatable? Is it? Is this more one-time in nature? Is it somewhere in between? Yeah. I mean, if you bought at the multiple trading at today in twenty nineteen or twenty twenty, and then you experience this huge growth, and then it pulled back a little bit, well, you're still sitting in a pretty good spot.
1: Yeah. So if you look at the overview. We can see this in the margins. So the issue was that your operating margins went from about 14%, 15% in the first part of the decade. The first entire half of the decade it never exceeded about 15% to about 40%. Mm-hmm. And it scares people when that happens. Right? Yeah. Um, now, there's minimal change in
0: the gross margin. If you're looking at it today. You would love it if you owned it from 2012. Correct. But if yes. you're looking at today, if investing is all about the future you're predicting the future right so. but there are a few things worth inter- that are worth mentioning
1: one there's no reason why it shouldn't do that um gross margins are always around 70 percent or something there's no reason why they shouldn't go from being 15 to percent to to 40 um this is the logic of like you know when people read uh, the outsiders with cap cities and they think how did they do this and everything um to a significant extent it's up to you how leanly you want to run it is going to generate how big the margin is. Um, has acquired ABC. ABC spent all the money. Um, they, you know, it, you have a lot of freedom in terms of how mu- how efficiently you run an operation where pricing is not really an issue. Um, the other thing is competition. They do have some competition, but they don't have a lot of competition. So this is one of those things where it's mostly up to them how they they. Um, uh, whether they inflict damage on themselves or they have a lot more success. Um, this is always a controversial type company, Face simpler, similar to Facebook. Um, there's often a disconnect between the reactions that people give about their um, feelings about the company, which can often be negative. And mixed, almost as if they're addicted to something and they love that thing, but they hate the company and, and you know. Just
0: can't walk away from it. And that's
1: very similar to, to Facebook, to Meta, in that they it does not generally have terribly positive image, the company. And even to some extent, the product, there's a annoyance with the company um, versus people using it. Um, even in Microsoft's best days, there was a lot of that. Uh The fact is that they they use it. Um, Yeah, so...
0: And the question is just what their behavior is, you know? They're such passionate fans. I mean, like you said, I mean, downside, upside. I I was always surprised by the amount of um, fans that would critique their user experience and link it back to, oh, the company is just trying to generate more cash for their stock price. The amount of videos I've seen... Of everyday individuals that are just hobbyists and people that use play their games whatever that right. relay everything back to the terrible experience being the company's fault because they want to print more money, whatever pay their executives yes. more I've never seen anything like it right, and that is a that is a very big issue
1: um that is unusual very yeah that you have an awareness that uh the people have an awareness that, it, you know, it's a public company and all those sorts of things. Would the company be better off not being public? Yes, definitely. Uh, definitely the company would be better off not being public. It would be better not to be exposed to these facts uh, about how much money they make and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or to be part of some giant company that helps disguise that fact. Sure, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that is a, a benefit for... A Disney or whatever they can see how much Disney makes overall and everything but they don't have a very good idea for how much they make in different sorts of categories so you don't know how much Disney consumer products and what everything is really making on that um, it's all mixed in or your private company people don't have an awareness of that uh, yeah and you can see the gross margins look great so a lot of it is things that were more achievable gross margins were strong before you knew how pop uh, how popular or was with the fan base didn't require a huge amount of increase in revenue so they were able to do this on basically like a tripling of revenue right caused a almost so basically about a three times increase in revenue caused about a 10 times increase in operating profit so that's the part that people are is that repeatable no that's not repeatable um but like i said it's something that if you looked at the company and tried to understand it, I definitely thought prior to this inflection where you started having a really big increase in, in earnings per share and everything, it was under-managed. It was underutilizing utilizing um, its potential. Um, but there's other companies that are like that. We could do, a, um, what is it,
0: WWE? Oh, they've been in the news lately. Yeah. He stepped down as, I believe, temporary.
1: Yeah. Um, so this was one that was always debated because it's another one where the possibility to earn a lot more money definitely seemed like it was there. Um, it doesn't have the same record as Games Workshop, which is Warhammer. Um, this is World Wrestling. Um, so Big WWE fan? Uh, no. <laughs> um, but... Finding other ways to monetize it. And so it's something that you see in terms of the intellectual property, in terms of the fan base. And you can look at that and say, OK, can they convert that into financial results? That's often the same thing that we see, honestly, in the early days of the Facebook and um, the Googles and the uh, YouTube and all of that. You have something that you realize is got the audience, right? And then when you realize, okay, it's attractive to advertisers, then we have a business model that could be really successful. Uh, We already have in place these other things. It's a lot easier than trying to figure out, can they convert more people to this thing? Right? If you were asking me, could games workshop um, grow and get a lot more fans of Warhammer when it's a completely new concept, I would have no idea how to answer Mm -hmm. that. Right. Mm -hmm but if you're saying given what the situation is in terms of the fan base in terms of the property in terms of what they've done over it have been a period of decades by then um can they turn this into money and how much money can it be that is easier to analyze when we talk about business momentum so once you're already in the door and turn it with customers you know how much can we then sell them how much could we make off of it is a lot easier to evaluate for me than like can this go viral can this become a lot more popular Mm -hmm. um sometimes you can look at it and say okay well things are going well in the few states that this that they have locations or whatever they can expand that and i think it's repeatable you know um but sometimes it's not it's hard to tell um we talked about howden joinery The issue that they have is um, for the most part, it's just a UK company. Has a little bit of an expansion basically into France. It's hard to know how repeatable their business model is and how successful it will be in different countries because you don't have a good, it's further away from the consumer. So you don't understand it as well. You don't understand the differences in the building uh, for, for builders in different countries and what that's like. You don't understand a lot of those things and so it can be harder to know can you repeat it somewhere else but how repeatable is it yeah um and then some of the things you're talking about are like with the tim cook thing they were talking about is more like how management is going to run things and changes in capital allocation that's usually a lot easier to figure out those are kind of easy just from looking at what they've done in the past or well, how Steve Jobs yeah. had like an obsession about not buying back its stock. The company yeah. needed to buy back its stock. Um, the company maybe needed to run some things with a little more financial discipline. And it had all the other things going for it. So if someone says, I'm going to do these things, then that that's a recipe for success in the mm-hmm. way that like a private equity group taking over something and saying, we're going to impose these sorts of approaches to something that was successful, but had never focused on this before.
0: Yeah, it's interesting when you look at the difference between like Apple and Games Workshop, Apple thinks of themselves as a product company Mm -hmm. and Steve Jobs was never willing to compromise on that. So even if that meant less from a profitability standpoint, he was okay with it. Mm -hmm. But then you look at Games Workshop and you could see a lot of the individuals. I mean, if you're watching on YouTube right now, there's just so many videos and I've watched a few videos where literally, like I said, I mean, people are saying, oh the quality of games workshop has gone down and mm-hmm. games workshops profits have gone up so like right. is there a fine line between those two yep. things
1: yes it's how much you um so there's two issues here one is the steve jobs approach with apple basically only worked because it was a technology thing that could go uh to a huge market if it had been something that would apply to a very small market i don't know if it would have mm-hmm.
0: worked and you could see the difference right i mean how many businesses are with an apple how many revenue lines are with an apple
1: right so if if steve jobs had been running tandy leather would they have had the same <laughs> yeah. success yeah. i don't know i don't know that the same approach works It's certainly would if if amazon if you took an amazon approach to a company like that doesn't make sense when you have a small market like that um but uh there is the trade-off like you said with games workshop yeah because it's a very niche market and there's nothing they, they can do about it. The, the reason why the, they have that problem is that it requires a high degree of buy-in in terms of time and dedication to it. It has a high sort of um, um, like threshold that you have to get over to get into it. Right? Anything in general has that with fantasy and science fiction and whatever sorts of things versus some things that are more accessible. Now, once people do that, you might be able to reach a wide audience if you can get people to buy into that. Um, we just talked about Marvel things. Marvel did that very slowly. Now, of course, how do you bring in someone new when you have 20 some movies or something? You can't, but you did it over a period of time of gradually, you know, boiling the frog mm-hmm. that way, right? There you go. Good um, reference. So that's the yeah, that's the issue that you have with Games Workshop. Um, and you're always gonna have that sort of issue, which is that if you're going to be such a small devoted fan base that you have then people are going to be upset about the profitability issue um apple you can see has very low gross margins and obviously can squeeze its suppliers too um relative to how much it makes in terms of operating profit so for instance apple's gross margins aren't radically different than those of some large food companies but its operating profits are probably about 10 points higher so that gives you an idea of just how big the scale is mm-hmm. versus even other giant companies.
0: They talk about that in the book as well. Mm-hmm. Squeezing, like how Tim's approach to that. I mean, yeah, that's exactly what he was doing. Yeah. And
1: that so that's captured a lot of the profit for themselves. Um, we always talk about bargaining power. Having a lot of bargaining power is is part of it. Apple's also somewhat lucky that way, though Games Workshop falls in the same sort of category. You're basically taking commodity-type inputs. That's what you're buying. And then you're turning that into the product that people care about. If you buy something that people care a lot more about from the beginning that has much more input into the quality, then it's a lot different. People are not buying Apple because of the inputs in terms of the technical things that are inside of it. So if that was the case, then you have a much harder... um, situation to deal with likewise games workshop stuff is not being bought primarily based on the quality of the material so if they want to skimp on the material and then the ip can capture a lot of the value even though they've actually cheapened it in a way you know mm-hmm. um whereas if people uh didn't care as much about the ip in that case but cared a lot about the quality of the material that they were buying then you wouldn't be able
0: to do that do you find companies like game workshop are harder to feel certain about the future than other companies because it is so ip driven and cult fan base driven
1: uh no i think that they control their own destiny to a much greater extent so if you were confident in management and in the strategy that they had they are actually a lot more durable and safer and more predictable than people think I do not worry about IP things but hit driven things except to the extent that they can inflict damage on themselves. Um most companies well yeah I would say the danger for most companies is going to be externally inflicted harm by competitors rivalry but also suppliers and, and to some extent customers and stuff. Um they will blame investors will blame those companies for it. But I think to a significant extent, it's outside of their hands. So did BlackBerry make all these terrible mistakes and stuff and whatever? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm not really sure that they did. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, looking back on it, people will say, what everything that Palm did wrong
0: and BlackBerry did yeah. wrong, and everything. They- You can make the case, oh, should they have pulled back? But I mean, that's, that's very hard to do. I mean, how many companies now are laying off employees because they just grew too fast? Right, they so- there were more employees
1: the the big problems i have with those is the opposite of the streaming thing right mm-hmm. the scary thing about palm blackberry whatever is there will be only one the customer will not carry around an apple phone and an android phone yeah, uh-huh. that's and, literally like a winner take all market right and so that's that is when it's working it's great but when it, it fails it will fail catastrophically uh, to some extent, that's obviously true with the Games Workshop thing. But I don't think that's true with the streaming things. I think if you run a streaming service very well, then what will happen? You'll be the second, the third, the fourth. But many people will have four. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot of it within your own control. And then it's a question of analyzing the organization.
0: Um, Does a lot of that thought, thought process come from, well, how much do people pay for direct tv or their whatever tv provider it is how much does it cost to stream if you have a bundle it's not too far off. maybe a little bit more money but not too crazy we
1: talked about porter's five forces right yeah a big one is substitution right
0: so threat threat of substitutes what is the threat of a competitor coming in to offer the same product right and what i think Uh, A lot of people
1: get wrong looking at it from a business perspective is they think that Peacock is a substitute for Paramount, is a substitute for Apple TV, is a substitute for Netflix. Now, in the overall macro sense of it, we group them all together. We could say that they're substitutes, that you use them to fill your time from one to the other, maybe. But if they have something that you want to see on it, it's not a substitute. They can deny the ability completely for someplace else to be a source of you being able to find that. And so I'm sure that Netflix notices that a bunch of people sign up when they release Stranger Things and they might all sign up and then they might all cancel, but there is no substitute Mm -hmm. when they put out a show that people care about that way. When HBO has had Game of Thrones, no substitute. If that was something that people felt that they had to watch, but it's not just that for the people which is 0.01% of the people listening to this, for which uh, Warhammer is important, Mm -hmm. there's no substitute, right? So it is culturally irrelevant to almost everyone. But to those that it is relevant for, there's no substitute. And the thing is that having a business where there's no substitute for it, even if 99% of people don't know what it is, don't care about it, is often a much better business than having something that seems very important to most people but there are substitutes for and uh th- that is one of the biggest issues is the threat of substitutes issue um, and that makes it hard to evaluate some of these things i think it makes it very hard sometimes to evaluate um apple unless it becomes very mature so that you're in a state in which it is the winner and it doesn't seem like anyone can displace them at that point it's a winner for reasons that don't have to do with just some technical things or whatever but just a very strong tendency for people not to switch between things and once you have that um but then we see that when people look at meta they're saying that it doesn't seem they they have this very strong bet in a sense that it will be radically different in the future than it was in the past. They must be predicting a very steep drop off in terms of advertising and usage of the, the um, company's products, or uh, services. Um, they, ha- you know, it's it's baking in an incredible change from what it is recently, and so that's the kind of thing with the business momentum. People see a positive sort of business momentum with Apple, obviously, versus Facebook, um, versus Meta. Because obviously Meta's financial results, actually for the last five years or whatever, are much better than better, Apple's. Yeah, much way better. better. Yeah, uh-huh. mm-hmm. and not just way better, but also way more consistent and on trend with what they were in the past. Mm-hmm. And and, um, and but they're seeing stuff underneath um, the financial results, which may say that that's true um they could easily be saying that they see changes in in usage behavior um sometimes though people have a big overestimate of that um they definitely i mean these trend things so right i've had a kindle now for what 15 years if you look at the numbers for the first half of that period seven to eight years ebooks grew market share for the second seven half years they've lost market share so that's how long it lasted, seven to eight years. It was outperforming print books, and then since then, it's peaked and it's not gaining on print books at all. So who would have predicted that? Mm-hmm. That it would. Uh, people probably would have underpredicted how rapidly it would have taken half the market or something. But then the predictions probably all would have been for it to wipe out print things sure, over time, yeah, take the whole market. Yeah, and you know, think about how long I haven't had cable for the The tendency for people to switch from cable things to streaming things has been actually really slow compared to what I would have initially predicted. It's happened, but it's been really slow. And so if you're betting in the market you know, on that, you could certainly see the momentum in a sense. Mm-hmm. But could you see how rapid the momentum is? And that's the thing with these stocks that you have to be careful about. People obviously saw momentum in um, Netflix, and they were right about it. But that momentum slowed a bit and went slightly negative, and that radically changed the price. I mean, how much is Netflix down as a
0: stock? It's got to be like what um, seventy-eight something. It's gone from
1: that's all P- in the last.
0: We could do year-to-date because that's
1: all in the last year-to-date, right? Basically, one year. Yeah, one year.
0: There you go. So we got like what six hundred bucks.
1: Okay. Yeah, click compare in S and P, and it'll tell you exactly what the number is. Yeah, it's now 72% 72%, versus the market down 20. And that's all basically in the last six months, really, if you look Mm. at it. Yeah. So that's a radical change in my mind of things. But the same thing is even true in the case of Meta, where it's not even captured very well until super recently. Um, Like we're talking three to six months ago again. Um, Did it change its name? It it changed its ticker, right? So I said that I gone through
0: There um, she is down eighteen uh, percent. No, that's not correct. <laughs> that's not correct. Um.
1: So why don't you? get uh, There you go. Yeah. There's more than one company named mm-hmm. Meta. Yeah.
0: Thought I found it, but I saw eighteen percent. I'm like, no, that's not correct.
1: Yeah. Um. So you have a decline. The. Uh, what is it? Fifty percent. How much is it? Fifty three percent. Fifty three percent and netflix is 70 percent um and those are with still very strong numbers so it's even just the fear of a slowdown Mm -hmm. and now it's realized but literally it's been realized for like six months it's Mm -hmm. not even like a year of it being clear that momentum has slowed significantly but that gives you let's let's put netflix aside because it's a little more complicated um with meta it's actually a low multiple for a stock with the kind of growth and everything you know, for its numbers. Yeah, yeah it's actually a really low multiple. So it contracted beyond being a somewhat premium price stock at one point to a growth value uh, stock um, to being something that's actually at a value type multiple. Um, it's gone below where the market would normally price something with that growth, just a generic stock that has those kinds of characteristics. So that's the problem with the momentum stuff. And presumably that could happen with Games Workshop, right? If it was priced too much, into the this is a high quality business games workshop is a pretty can you see the um, market cap stuff because it might really help if you see this to give an idea of how radically different it's not just um yeah can you do what is it the key ratio key that we'll right. we just have to look at the past 10 years probably um market cap so what was its market cap 10 One, years ago 178 million right pounds so pounds. 200 some million dollars it was a micro cap and now it's at, you know, or it it peaked or so at probably four billion. Yeah. So that's like five billion over five billion US. Um, so you had something that was went from being a microcap to being valued over five billion uh dollars US. Within ten years. Yep, within ten years. And obviously that exceeds the growth in the earnings. And the earnings of course exceed the growth in the revenue. It is fascinating that the revenue growth is only like ten percent during that time period. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but that operating profit. <laughs> Yeah, and and that is a a thing where you might catch up to it later as you see the financial results, right? So value investors do that a lot, where once the financial results change, then they look into it. There are signs, though. If we look at, we can look at key ratios um, or the overview is fine too. Yeah, um, yeah, like look, look, look at returns um, during the whole period. They were very high, even at the beginning. Return on invested capital. You know, the reason why something that has only a 10% revenue growth rate has such high value creation is that return on invested capital in a bad year for this company was 40%. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, many of the companies that we're talking about don't have that possibility because they don't have that kind of um, uh, uh, growth rates that way, uh, creating that much value. If they have the same growth rate, it doesn't create as much value. So it was clear early on that way. They also had the traditional things that you'd see with a very strong company in terms of gross margin, right? Gross margin was some of the highest that any company would possibly have. And they also had the traditional thing with the large gap between gross margins and operating margins, which suggested that a huge economies of scale and or there could be greater efficiencies. So the product economics, I talk about this sometimes, the product economics were really excellent, even though the financial results were merely very
0: good. Um, it looks like if you just look at 2012, that an activist would love this situation. Strong gross margins. And then there's a ton of room um, from like an operating expense perspective to fix. And then strong IP, everything else, just kind of across the board if you go back to 2012. hmm And then as a result, you had a huge
1: increase in things like free cash flow and all that. Although they'd always been paying out everything in dividends, you know, so you could see the history that it had that way. Um, But then it's also completely, you know, discretionary, you know, and it it doesn't have substitutes, like we said, really. Um, So it has a lot of the characteristics that would mean that it could be a good business, which is helpful when we talk about business momentum a lot of times looking at the industry and what kinds of things you think are a good industry is helpful in figuring out, because usually it's much harder to fix the product economics, to fix a bad product, bad service, bad industry, whatever it is, than it is to fix organizational things that are mainly about financial engineering. is very easy mm-hmm. to fix, but also just other aspects of the company. Sure. So if you have um, like Apple, for instance, their results kept getting better and better but the product was already something that people that that was a leading product in many ways so it's easier to fix those than to fix ones that have product economics issues which are usually more like um they can't price high enough um it doesn't turn fast enough um those sorts of things Sometimes, though, it's hard to value because we talked about Tandy. What's the difference between, you know, a Tandy and a Games Workshop? It's hard to say because in both cases, it's very, a lot of people would say, well, the market is so small. And if you kind of guess wrong about the size of the market, then you can get an answer that, yes, it's a perfectly good company and whatever, but it can't really grow. This won't really work out. And so you might have a really strong position in some sort of niche, but if you really believe the niche can't get very big, then you know um, then you don't have an idea that the business performance is going to get really successful and because uh, a lot of these things have to do with scale. We've said that a lot of times where it shows up first in things like the gross margin mm-hmm. um, and so gross margin in turns are things that you can obviously look at to get an idea uh, especially when a company isn't very mature of whether there's the potential for a much bigger Um, for much better business developing over time and also looking at the industry and what it looks like. Um, I think a lot of the problem is that the business momentum stuff we talk about is really more like um, financial results um, that aren't, I wouldn't call it business momentum so much as like just execution of it from a financial engineering perspective and from a Top management perspective about how they run things and then cyclical things as opposed to business momentum being more like, are we adding more customers and um, improving the um, competitive position of the company and all that kind of stuff, which is more the things that you have that you can value qualitatively that if they're going right are likely to pay off for a very long time. Um, Those are more the things to focus on probably. Than to focus on the ones that are more the short-term sorts of things that you can squeeze a little more profit out of things although i i do pay a lot of attention to those i just don't think of them as business momentum mostly they're changes in capital allocation you know so like apple deciding to buy back a lot of stock mm-hmm. is helpful mm-hmm. if apple had instead decided we've got a lot of money we need to spend it on acquiring things i don't think that's a real change in the business momentum it's not really that different about how the business is working but it's going to change dramatically how the stock performs you know if they said let's acquire stuff unrelated to what we're doing instead of let's buy back
0: a lot of stock you
1: get a very different stock result
0: sure cool good job out of you jeffrey well i want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the focus compounding podcast if this is the first time you're joining us uh, be sure to check out all the content that we put out on the internet best place to get that is probably to follow me on twitter at at focus compound you could check our website out www.focuscompounding.com if you have a question that you would like to be potentially answered on the podcast, uh, email it to me at andrew@focusedcompounding.com. At I want to thank everybody so much for all the support. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hit the subscribe button, thumbs this video up, and we'll see you in the next podcast. Take care.